from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning and welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, and welcome business fans to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. We're here live every morning, every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. And I'm Eric Bradlow, and I'm your host this morning, along with my, well, my friend who I haven't seen in a few weeks, uh, Shane Jensen, and of course our other collaborators, uh, Cade Massey is out this week, we're thinking Adi Weiner's going to be here at some point. Uh, of course, this is a call-in show, and uh, I love having people call in. I actually have a list of 12 topics to talk about today. Only and 12? So, only 12 today. Okay. And if it's going to be a slow day. It'll be a slow day. And if you want to call in, of course, that's 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And, of course, you can always email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I hope people have been following us, us on Twitter, because I've been doing a lot of tweeting, at WMoneyBall. Um, Basically, it's become my new everything I talk about now. I put at W Moneyball on there so that, you know, little props for our show here uh, during the week. So, guys, uh, and Adi has joined us. Good morning, Adi. Good, good morning, morning, Shane. How are you guys today? Excellent. It's good to be back. It's good to have you back. Yeah. Good to see that Red Sox cap again. Yes. In no. a sort of interesting kind of let's argue kind of way. Yeah, no, yeah, let's, <laughs> I've been looking forward to that, believe me. <laughs> well, baseball is one of the topics, but what I thought I would do this morning, guys, uh, and we have a guest at 8.30 today, but the other hour and a half, the other three quarters of our show is us talking about the world of sports, statistics, and business, three uh, our favorite topics to talk about. What I thought I would do for you guys this morning is I have a list of, actually, it's 11 topics. I thought I would just give you the sport and then let you guys pick which one you want to talk about, okay? How does that sound this yeah, morning? Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, in the depths of Asia for like three weeks. I'm excited to just hear what's been going on in sports. No right. internet in Asia, huh? No. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's internet, but it, there we go. It's, it's, it's less the internet accessibility, more the 13-hour time difference. Yeah. So. There we go. I mean, listen, there, there was a time, old days, when you would go overseas and there was no sports. There was a blackout. Right. You had to dribble in letters. You'd get information. Right, well, well, I mean, back back then, were there sports, early, actually? There well, were. There, there, there was baseball. There, there was. There. Well, here we go, guys. Here's the order. So we could talk about tennis, NBA, MLB. NBA, MLB, NHL, NFL, NBA, NBA, horse racing, or NFL. Well, what do we do? You know, guys, uh, NFL. come on. Uh, NFL. Uh, NFL. All right. <laughs> Jumped in. I uh, wanted to do horse quickly, racing. How long did that, that would take? Go quickly. So <laughs> I, a lot actually, of NFL. Well, I have two, two FNF, NFL topics. The first one is a, an age-old statistical question. We talk about priors all the time. So I will say, that obviously, this will bring a smile to Shane's face. We know the Pats beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl last year. I remember year. something about that. Wait, wait, wait. I'm that. just saying it's on my piece of paper. I know the topic. This is like a little welcome back gift. It's like handing me a card. All right, but let me get to the statistics topic here. So it, give us, give our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, if our callers want to call in, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Let's imagine we say last year's result is reflective of the true team's strengths. What would make one deviate from predicting, your best prediction, Pats against Falcons again in the Super Bowl? What would, I mean, I'm just saying, if you had to pick right now, what would make one deviate from Pats against the Falcons? Well, can I go in the first with that? Because yeah, I, have, sure. I have, yeah. just I have, don't have that many insights, so I would immediately say Brady is at that point of his age curve that is that's looking right. at high derivative. I want to take these one by one. So one would be so the Pats, one of the key players, if not the most important player on the Pats, has 
gone beyond his peak. His level, no one has ever, our fans here on Wharton Moneyball might know, kind of nobody has had a great season as a quarterback beyond the age of 40 in the right. NFL. So Probably Bet Favre, when he was with the Vikings that one season, yeah. probably might be the one exception to that where he had a tremendous season. I don't remember if it was I, when he was 39 or if he was 40. I think he was 39. How, yeah. how old was uh, Peyton Manning that last season with Denver? 39, I believe. 39. Yeah. Okay. But he was 37 or 38 the season he threw for 55 touchdowns. No, I mean, no, his last season, no, I, you know. I, I asked, you know, you agree, he, was he, was thorough, he was thoroughly he mediocre was thorough. in that last season, but they still won the Super Bowl because their defense carried them. All right, but so anyway, let's just so take this one just by saying, one. I'm just one possible the derivative. reason. Yeah, one reason is yeah. that, in some sense, Brady's not getting better, for sure, let's say. Mm-hmm. He's going to get potentially worse. We could argue about how much worse he might get. And they haven't added enough other players to make them as great as they were last year. So that's one well, rationale. Not in my knowledge. So Any they, others? They have, right. actually. But. Okay, but other other reasons. What what would be other reasons? Again, the reason I'd like to bring this, this is topic up is not, prior, This is not going to happen. Yeah. Why wouldn't you pick? Look, if you had to pick, who was the best last year? Patriots in the AFC and Falcons in the NFC. Why not go for that again? I'm saying what would make one deviate as a statistician from that as your best or your what we'll call it the modal prediction. Yeah. It's the most likely thing. You know, I mean, I, I, so uh, there's two things. There's there's a couple things like kind of under the regression to the mean sort of category of things. But let me just what would make since everyone I, I'm going to get a, not technical here, but a little technical since all the teams have the same sample size, meaning every team plays the same number of games. Mm-hmm. If before regressing back towards the mean, if the Falcons were ahead, what would make a crossing happen where they wouldn't still be ahead? Yeah, they'll regress inward, but it's not like any of the teams above the mean is going to regress upwards. Everybody will regress inwards that was above well, the mean, no, and what no, would make a crossing? No, 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 no. No, that's not how it works because, A, there's a couple stru- – there's one at least one structural thing um, that the both the Patriots and the Falcons, because of their great performance last season, um, have uh, a harder schedule. That's built into right. the system. No, no. So you want to bring uh, other information, which I'm fine with. You want to bring in schedule. All that's right. Fine. So schedule's one. Also, two, they did, they had inferior draft picks over the other teams. All and right. so the These influx of reasons. young talent is going to be less. And three, the most important one, I think, is that their you know, good performance last season was a mixture of their actual ability and luck. And we know for a fact that they were lucky because, you know, they... They went as far as they did. There was some amount of luck there, okay. and that luck is unlikely to be perpetuated into this season. Right, so, so that's the reason for that they right. might cross other teams. So just so just just to hear your argument, which is a reasonable statistical argument, Fal- let's just take the Falcons as an example. Falcons observed strength equals true strength plus some error term. Yeah. We know the Falcons we know the error did term well, was positive. so their error term was positive, and maybe more positive than other teams, maybe. Yes. That's the argument. And therefore, they won't get as positive an error term as they did yeah. last year, as maybe, I'll pick another good team, the Green Bay Packers. Right. And so, all else equal, there might be a crossing there yeah, in your and, prediction. And I mean, what goes into that error term is uh, things like, some things like injuries and stuff like that. Both, almost every team that's ever won and gone to the Super Bowl has had a pretty good season in terms of avoiding injuries. Well, as we know, by the way, um, as we know, uh, anything in your statistical mo- that's not in your statistical model in some sense that's true in the world goes into the error term. So well, there's yes, lots but of I, stuff. I'm just so, saying that so let, like me, injuries let me, are let me summarize one. this. And, yeah, because I know we, I have another NFL we, topic We talked about this to. last week. We do it almost every week in baseball. In, in every sport, there's a concept of over and under performance relative to your, your actual quality. It's, it's impossible to measure actual quality 
actually. So there are surrogates, and one of them is a, is a Pythagorean type ratio, which in baseball is calculated from runs allowed and runs scored. And football has the same thing. So you could go back to last year's season and say, was there any team that, point. that seemed to be really killing it on the field, but just somehow not winning the games when they mattered or, or, or getting you know pushed out? And they might have a better forecast to be I think if you did Pyth- if I had to guess, if you did Pythagorean, it would still be New England and Atlanta but one and two. Let me but, just say, by the way, I'd like, I don't know the answer. I, I really yet. love your uh, answer, Adi, because I think what it gets to is what do we have that's observed about these teams? And what we have observed is points for, points against. This is these are always the inputs to this Pythagorean type of formula. We could compute a residual for each team, and maybe, by the way, maybe it's not true. Maybe you know, as I always say, remember four games the Patriots played without Brady. Brady was eleven and one, so you know there might not have been you know. And you looked at their points scored, well, right. and points I, it, against. It's, it's pretty hard I to think bet the, against the Patriots. I think the Patriots were, were, were very very good. All right, well, I have another NFL topic, but it's it, there's, there's a bunch a, of NFL well, topics. There's there some rule changes. There, this well, I want to get they? to a rule change, yeah. but it gets to another statistical question. Since we're here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. I'm Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co-host Wednesday uh, morning. Yeah, every Wednesday morning, eight to ten. A.M. Eastern, replayed throughout the week with Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. They shortened the overtime from 15 minutes to 10 minutes. Now, it actually turns out, if you look historically over the last 20 years... It's not going to cut out. It, it wouldn't have changed many games. Well, maybe. And that's my question to you. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, how many plays are you cutting out? Why do they do this? I know the number. What, so, how, well, so, I, so what's the motive? Tell us The tell motivation us why is this. to prevent injuries. Mm-hmm. The motivation is it will cut down the number of plays. More plays, especially when you're fatigued, creates injuries. Yeah. However, here's the number of plays. The average number over the last 20 years, 40 plays. Is in a season, 40 plays in totality for every team. Not 40 plays for a team. Yeah. 40 plays in the league in totality. And putting that in context, how many plays are there in a season? 30,000, 40,000? Yes, somewhere in that range. Okay. So this is. <laughs> but here's the mathematical question I want to ask you because there's a reason I brought this one up. Let's imagine you were saying, all right, we have data for last, whatever, 40 years on 15 minute overtimes. We have no data on 10-minute overtimes. But imagine you wanted to make a forecast of what would happen if it went to a 10-minute overtime. So this is what we call a counterfactual, Mm -hmm. where in this case, we actually have no data points at 10 minutes. And let's even imagine they had taken the other suggestion, which many people said, zero overtime, meaning now there's no overtime. How would you, as a statistician, try to make a forecast for a data point for which you actually have no information, direct information, because there's never been a game played in the NFL with 10-minute overtime. Well, I mean, the problem is is that the counterfactual means it's a universe that you aren't observing. Right. They're going to play different. I mean, well, that's my point. I'm waiting. I, mean, I, I could have so said it, but I'm the host statist- today. I was yeah. waiting for you guys but to as say a status, this. as a statistician, you kind of have to, I mean, if you want any data at all, you just have to assume they're not going to play that different. In overtime, right? And you, I mean, we well, do have observations on 10-minute uh, overtimes no, no, but as long as we ignore that last five right, minutes. so let's get to this. So one possibility, which seems, I think we all agree, seems unlikely, is, you know, if there's five minutes left in overtime, you're like, we can still win this game to assume that as we're, you know, in today's now new rules, with one minute left in overtime, which is really six minutes in the old one, I wouldn't play any different. That's probably not true, but mm-hmm. it's an assumption. Yep. And you're, by the way, you're going the direction I wanted you guys to go, which is when you don't have direct data... 
you have assumptions. Yeah. So now what we have to do is we have to replace data, which we don't have, with assumptions. Yep. And so I just thought it was an interesting thing because as the NFL, they're not stupid. As they enacted this policy, they have to have some belief about the counterfactual that's going to happen. So I just wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, by the way, uh, co- returning to um, Audie's point about the motivation – in that, I know we only have forty plays. I guess uh, in that sort of a season total. A season, for season, season, season. I think that's, uh, How, yeah. what's the, what's the injury rate there versus like the injury rate per play in any other part of the game? Like, are there Assuming actually that much are, more, tired are there at the very end, more right? injuries? I mean, you, you, I think you're are you alluding yeah. to the idea that maybe at the end of the game they're exhausted? Well, yes. Yeah, no, and, that was the motivation. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we can you can I mean, it's not great data, but you can at least check that. I just thought, look. Let's, let me just turn on our business hat here, because we are at Wharton. This is Wharton Moneyball. You know, business is one of our three major topics. Let's imagine we're sitting here and one's trying to evaluate the effect of the budget that was just submitted by the White House. I mean, we've never observed a world in which that particular, let's say, cut happens or that tax rate happens. And this is what people do all the time. They make forecasts for worlds for which yeah. they do not live in. And, and they tend to be, year in and year out, horrible. Yeah, I mean, yeah <laughs> but I mean, I'm just saying, but there have to be some assumptions. One makes. So Shane's made a reasonable assumption, which is, it's not even just linearity, it's just no change in behavior, yeah. just run your simulation, and then just cut the clock off at yeah. 10 minutes in overtime, and, 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 and that's it. Those I'm plays gonna, just never happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that by saying I think it's a reasonable assumption in this case. They might play a little faster but they're still, they, they play the way they play. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to do that kind of thing uh, and and I think that it would maybe you'd be a little short in your approximation but it's not a but bad But you wouldn't agree if it went to zero over time because now this is, I was also trying to get you guys to talk about what's called backward induction. Yeah. Right. Let's start from the end of the game, end of regulation and say there's no overtime. Now you have to say, well, what would I do if there were two minutes left but that was the last two minutes left? Yeah. Would I go for a two to win the game instead of playing for overtime well there is no overtime but yeah but now like how far back do you go like eventually like i gotta play the first minute of the game differently knowing that the game's gonna end with regulation so there really the reason i like the topic why i brought it up to you guys was there really is statistical principles about assumptions about backward induction i just thought it was interesting to think about from a policy point of view why would the nfl do this and what what can we predict will happen well i actually i I read that that this was the purpose is this was to decrease injuries Correct. that was the that actual ra- that's so the one rationale of the, given one of the observations some, that i read about was that it seems odd to do this when there are other lower hanging fruit for example the thursday night game the thursday night game is a it's a three-day rest. It's a very short. You have to. I mean, one of the things that football players. I thought they, they were they, actually changing the schedule so that there was less Thursday. There's night a few of them. I, I, yeah. Is that the case? I mean, I think the, 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 I thought there's once once a year you play Thursday night. I, well, I I think they may be reducing the number of the number of weeks where there are Thursday night. Games. I think. Would you Would you like the following? And I think many of us would make the team have a bye week. Before the Thursday yes. night game, yes. So you have ten days followed by ten days. As a matter of fact, you'll prevent injuries that way. You'll have a three week period where you have two games, and you always have a bye week before. I yeah. think everybody would enjoy that. Yep. I no, think, I agree. But you're right. So now you see, I brought brings up another topic which we talk about all the time on Wharton Money. Let's call it effect size. Which one is going to have a greater effect? In magnitude, and not in not in math term, in real number of injuries in in the real world. Like if we just if our outcome variable is the number of injuries of a certain type, let's say, and we want to reduce that, I think what you're saying is changing over time from fifteen to ten minutes will be a drop of water. 
changing potentially changing Thursday in night rules before that pool. could be a very large <laughs> swimming pool yeah, affecting yeah. I mean, it in yeah, some I way. Mean, I mean, you know, there's the obvious answer for why they went for the game, reducing of the length of the game Say versus it. the let, Thursday let, night let, game. Let what is that obvious answer? Money. 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 <laughs> of course. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, I mean, they'd, they'd probably play every night of the week, you know, if, if, if it wasn't going to be chaos for the schedule. Well, let me just say that one advantage, of course, of changing the length of overtime is there's not a much overlap between games. So mm-hmm. when people trying to watch multiple games in markets, there's less overlap. But, of course, it does also mean the actual games, the small fraction that go to really late overtime, will have less advertising. There probably is somewhat of a balance, but I guarantee you no, net-net. Yeah. I know, net-net. This is money. This they, they, is, they've, this, got, they've gotten. They've done the calculation. Realize that they've gotten ninety nine point nine percent of their money out of the game by the t- t- f- you know first ten minutes of overtime. And so, well, what you've said is actually. So let me just go to a nice transition because I think we would all agree that last five minutes of an overtime game is kind of exciting. Let's go to another exciting thing, and we have our hockey guy back. Huh. Oh, hockey! It's returned. Well, yes, it's not yeah. only returned. Really keeping up on that. Too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know if you have, but I'll, I'll summarize it for you. Um, Nashville. The eighth seed in the West, they're in the, uh, the NHL Finals. Oh, my. The this is what I love about the, the NHL, West. man. NHL. Well, and actually, is, this is one of the, the Shane's lessons how, that he's taught me. How did the eighth seed do in basketball <laughs> yeah, this year? Oh, they did real <laughs> they well. Did, uh, they yeah. did real well. They went. Oh, they, they made went a run? In, uh, yeah, they did. They run a four straight losses on yeah. both the conferences. Oh yeah. and eight. They scored yeah. any baskets? Yeah, uh, they scored some <laughs> baskets. Not many, though. Not many. Those NBA playoffs sure are just as exciting as the NHL. Well, and... Pittsburgh and Ottawa is going to Game 7, and everybody, actually, you guys, even, I know, look, Shane is a hockey guy, we're not hockey guys. Game 7s in hockey are always exciting. Especially when they go to overtime, like four overtimes. Well, and by the way, if Ottawa were to win, I don't know if they're going to win the game, is it Pittsburgh? They're the sixth seed. So I, I, thought they imagine, were going, I thought they were at game six now. No, no. Uh, Ottawa won, won last night. Oh, they did? Okay. They right. won. They, See, beat, they, they, beat, that, they beat Pittsburgh 2-1 to one last night. By the nice. way, Pittsburgh was up one nothing late in the second period. So, so Shane, I, want, I wanted to so ask. So, again, a six and an eight seed six could be eight. playing for I the NHL finals. Why That's really are, amazing. When you talk, we hear this a lot, and Cade mentions it. We just mentioned it now. The seventh games in hockey Especially. are particularly exciting. As Seventh games in any Playoff series are exciting, but, but hockey, really in hockey. Why hockey? Someone explain. What about hockey makes it so exciting? Um, I mean, the short answer is hockey is inherently a more exciting sport than the other ones we've been talking about. I don't like about. that. I don't All like right. that answer. All right. <laughs> so it's why, a main, why is the seventh game of hockey better than, say, a second game? I mean, what what about hockey might, makes that seventh game particularly exciting? I don't actually know if they're really. I I, I don't. Do they play differently? No, is I, their this, style? This, this match. I, I don't think there is anything to it other than hockey being a really exciting sport. But like, I I think a seventh game in hockey. I mean, yeah, everybody's leaving it all on the ice. But that would be happening in basketball as well. I think. I think the real thing that makes hockey playoff games exciting, and this doesn't just apply to, um, the. Uh, uh, Seventh game is the unlimited overtime. Oh, I see. Well, right, yeah. right. Okay. the fact that we can go to like four or five overtime periods. And they do. And they do. <laughs> and, and they, they do. often do. So you're listening to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co hosts, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. Or you can email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And again, we're live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. So, guys, I have a thought about why Game 7 in hockey is so exciting, because, you know, in baseball, baseball Game 7s are exciting. But let's say a guy hits a two-run homer early in the game. That's very exciting, but, you know, teams can come out. In hockey, because of the low amount of scoring and the randomness in the game, like, every goal really matters. And, I mean, 
I'm not saying in baseball every run doesn't matter, but in hockey, every goal really matters. And so just the tension and the nervousness, just, you know, what happens if the goalie makes an easy mistake or what happens if, you know, a guy slips or hooks a guy and, you know, there's a two-minute penalty or a five-minute major. I mean, it's just everything comes down to possibly a very random event and... That makes it exciting. When no, is I, this going to happen? I would it, say it's soccer, too. I, I, I would I, say in soccer... But soccer's it, much more slow-moving. Soccer's slow-moving. Yeah. And I, I, I agree completely with that. Um, I mean, I think basically the comparison set between, say, hockey and basketball is, you know, the entire Game 7 of hockey is like the last 30 seconds of the basketball game. I would where, agree. Where, you know, basically there's so many scoring events in basketball, and then but then you can tune in the last minute, assuming it's still close. And now now, now you've got to be in a scenario. If our listeners want to call in, and I don't want to say disagree with us, but if you want to say which Game 7s are most yeah. exciting too, for example, I remember a Game 7 in the NBA last year, which was pretty exciting, well, when LeBron made that block against Iguodala. And, and, and I remember a Game another, 7 in baseball. Baseball last year. I remember was Game Seven yeah, in baseball right. that was pretty. And I, 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 I remember. Actually, this, this, wasn't this, there a Super Bowl? Even though it's not Game Seven, wasn't there a finish that, to that the Super Bowl the that was fairly exciting? Seven. So we've but had some I, good excitement. It's true, but I, and that kind of brings up the final point. I think on this, why hockey might be more exciting in terms of Game Sevens. It's not actually, but we see them more often. Game Sevens are exciting in every single sport, as we've kind of suggested just right now. But we see them more often in hockey. That's actually you know, a checkable hypothesis. Why? Why are there so many more seven games? Because the teams are more equally balanced, evenly balanced, actually Uh going into the series. And there's there's more randomness. I was just about to say, Adi, let's go back to our math equation that we talked about earlier in the show. Observe performance equals true performance plus error. You add a massive error error term in hockey, you're going to get 50 50. You're going to get game sevens. I mean, the fact that you've got an eighth seed against a potential sixth seed in the finals, would you ever see that in basketball? Well, clearly, would you see yeah. an eighth seed in the semifinals yeah. in basketball? Clearly, no. it's a basic mathematical fact that the closer they are to 50-50, the more likely you have game sevens. That's what we're talking yeah. about. And that's that's a fun mathematical so I'm just fact, giving and that's it out certainly there. true. But I think there's also game-to-game, game, there's just like more, yeah, there's more randomness unless in you, Unless you have sort of negative correlation. If there's negative correlation, you're more likely to get the game sevens. Yeah, if you're winning one, forces you to like lose the next yeah, one. Yeah, and I don't... <laughs> I don't really, I don't see that as much. There's not a particular, there's no real evidence. I mean, ba- I've looked base, at that. baseball has that type of thing, which is why I think baseball has less, or, or has a little bit of a negative correlation, just because, you know, every team, kind of, yeah, yeah, exactly, the pitchers, the, you, you have to kind of substitute out pitchers. Well, guys, so let's also now, since we've semi-transitioned, I don't know if we've transitioned to it, let's... Horse we, racing. You want to do horse I racing do, next? I do, we didn't, right. we didn't talk serious? about it. All right. Well, I mean, I, I actually do have a horse racing story. Oh, oh a horse well, racing story. You, you want to, well, let me just introduce the topic of horse racing, and then I want to hear your story. So everybody might know, in some ways, it was an exciting first two legs of the Triple Crown. Um, Always Dreaming won the Derby, and Cloud Computing, as a show of Wharton Money, but we're happy about that, won the Preakness. But on the <laughs> other hand, it makes the Belmont worthless. Like, no one's going to really care about the Belmont, because there will be no Triple Crown winner this year. The part that was interesting, of course, was Cloud Computing was, I don't know, a semi-long shot, was 13-1 to 1 to win the Preakness. Um, and, of course, I didn't win money on it, although... I. Let's not talk about my misbetting, but the horse that actually Jeff Cedar um, from uh, EQB stu- uh, Stables talked to us about, looking for Lee, you know, did come in second in the Derby. It was a very long, long shot. 50 to 1. Yeah. And it was about 20 to 1 in the Preakness and came in fourth, which, you know, again, this is a horse that no one predicted to do much and did come in second and fourth in two of the biggest races of the year. And so I just thought the reason I bring this up 
and then I'd love to hear your story, Shane, was cloud computing did not run the Derby. Yep. Their owner and trainer said, we can't win a race with 20 horses. It's a longer race than the Preakness. We're putting all our chips in for the Preakness and not even going to run the Derby. Now, there goes the question, number one, what is the value of rest in horse racing? And given our 830 guest, by the way, who's going to talk about training and everything, mm-hmm. it's a perfect segue to that topic. But literally, the owners and trainers strategically decided not to run their horse in the Derby, uh, yeah. cloud computing, to run it in the Preakness. What are your guys' thoughts about that? I mean, wouldn't you rather have two coin flips than one? I mean, if your goal is to win a triple crown race, did they make the right call? I mean, in retrospect, yeah, of course. They made but in, re- uh, yeah, in retrospect, <laughs> well, this is not the show of retrospective well, statistics. I, I, we're we're forward-looking no, thinkers here. We're, no, I mean, we're also experts in advanced hindsight. Yes, that's um, so, true. That's true. Uh, no, I mean, uh, well, let, let me let me t- let me do a Bradlow here. Yeah. How right. would, how would this is something that you like to do, Eric? You like to say, what data and set would I like to collect that would help me answer this question? Yes. So if we look historically, you're tempted to say, well, let's see how frequently the the horse that sits out the the Kentucky Derby how they do in the next race mm-hmm. in, in the Preakness and see if there's confers an advantage. Of course, there's a built-in bias because the best horses are going to run the ones with the best forecast are going to run both, and so you're and, and so you can have to try and to you, overcome yeah, you have that. To those Upset. I mean, I mean, it could be that this horse legitimately something about you know the trainers, something about this horse make it sort of more of a short track horse. They knew that in advance. They knew and that, so, and so that they that, said after the race, know, we had no intention ever of running the Derby. Right, right. So the, and the so you can't is, compare them to some of these horses necessarily. You, you know, yeah. you, you'd want a subset for those types of horses too. So I mean, but you could build, you could collect the data and try to see whether or not sitting out the first race confers any kind of time advantage or or place advantage, and to see if that matters. And it's hard to believe that it doesn't produce some sort of advantage. Right. The the question is really, is it is, is almost fair? I mean, the whole purpose of this is to bring out the best horses, the best three year olds. That's a it's different a showcase. question. There's twenty plus of them that show up for Kentucky Derby. It's it goes down smaller for the Preakness, and then the the, the those standing and may come come for the Belmont. It just seems against tradition, and you know how I am with tradition. By the way, you use the term bias. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a related question because I don't quite see it that way. So let's imagine I'm sitting here after the Kentucky Derby's over, after the Derby, okay, and I'm now trying to predict how well horses are going to do in the Preakness. So I already know who ran the Derby. I have that information, and I know who's going to run the Preakness. I collect a data set that looks exactly like that. I collect a data set. I look who's run the Derby. I see who's going to run the Preakness. Why would that be biased in any way? I agree it doesn't give me a prediction of the strength of the horse, but that's not the yeah. statistical problem I'm trying to answer. Well, what are you trying to do? Figure out the probability that a... A, that a horse that didn't run, run the Derby wins, wins the Preakness. So, so can, why is that data set biased? I don't care the reasons for which those horses didn't run the Derby. I've got a large number of times for which, I, let's say I've got last hundred years, I've got horses that didn't run the Derby, that ran the Preakness. I compute some no, empirical probability, and I'm done. There's no but, bias in that. No, no, well, wait, no but, but we're trying to find a, the value what if, there's a negative, what, what if there's a negative correlation between the two races? It doesn't matter. No, I'm no, sitting here right. after the Derby. But you're trying. Okay, you're trying to figure out what's the chance that a horse doesn't win. But you're. But you. You frame the question. What is the value added by sitting a horse? And one is an That's observation. The question you asked. 
I asked a different question. Okay, well, I asked, what's the chance after the derby that a horse... That's a different so question. You can, your question I is more answerable. Question. But my question is, decision, from a point of view of decision-making, I thought you, 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 you phrased it pretty cleanly. You, why would you prefer one coin toss over two? It sounds to me that you're asking the question, should you sit your horse through the Kentucky Derby? And my, quest, my, my answer is that the value added is, is hard to measure. All right. Well, I had two questions. So, then I, all right, so you're right. There's, those are two... I, I, but I, I think it's important that we have this discussion because those are two very different questions. One question is, after the derby's over, what's the likelihood that a horse that didn't run it? And that's a more answerable Absolutely. question. Yeah. And from, from a betting perspective, that's fine. In other words... That's what I would... Yeah. yeah. But that's a different question than I'm sitting here before the race. I want to think about maximizing my chances, I would say, of winning either of the two races or even, let's say, the Preakness. Should I run my horse in the derby or not? That question you have to, that question is a much harder question to answer or the value add of sitting out because then you get something about structurally known about the horses and yeah. stuff like that. So Shane, I, before we break here for our first half hour, first quarter of the show, if you'd like, let's hear your horse racing story. Oh, well, I, I went to uh, the Happy Valley Racetrack in Hong Kong when I was over there. For was their it a horse happy racing. place? It, it was. Oh, people were happy. People were happy. It, they, it was super exciting. Racing, yeah. I mean, the place was packed. There was tons of betting going on. And I was so close to winning big, it was ridiculous. I, I, I had to pick, well, whatever you call it, well, you have to pick the top two. But it doesn't matter, the order? What exacta? Is I don't remember no, if no, that's no. the yeah. exacta. No, anyway, no, no, I, yeah. the, 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 okay. It's some, okay. There's a different word for it in Hong Kong anyway. It doesn't matter. Um, but I, I had to pick the t- top two horses in a race. In the and, correct order, in the No, no. You Any just order. have to get the top two horses. Okay. And, and you know, it was, it was a pretty long odds one I did. I mean, it was probably like, you know, 40 to 1 or something like that. Um, and the horses, my, my two picks went one and three. Well, well, well. all right. That's three. That's somewhat close. Oh my goodness. I mean, it it, it was third by like an entire length. So, I mean, I guess it wasn't that close, but yes, I mean, I I could have went one like 800 Hong Kong dollars. It was ridiculous, which is like a hundred bucks. Well, it's interesting because in America, horse racing as a sport, as a spectator event is, is, uh, is declining. Yeah, but in Asia and in Europe, but particularly in Asia, it is a premier sporting event. Well, obviously, it's a topic maybe we'll talk about in the last hour of our show today. I mean, part of it, of course, is the competition among other sports and everything else that's kind of and grown. also gambling, which has become so much more widespread here in other arenas. At, in yeah. other arenas, yeah. it's always been big in horse racing, right. but now there's gambling in those. So this has been the first quarter of our show here on Morton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here this morning with Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. Uh, please stay with us for the full two hours of our show, and we'll talk to you again right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno, for bringing us back on, to me, an unknown song. I'm sure millions of people are out there saying, I know that song, but Eric Bradlow isn't one of them. So welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, and we're here every Wednesday morning, live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. I'm here this morning with Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. We've just been talking about horse racing a little bit. We talked about the NBA a little bit this morning. We talked about the NFL this morning. You know, guys, another topic that kind of, you know, reached my eyes this week. There's lots of topics that reach my eyes, and we sort of touched on it a little bit when we were talking about Tom Brady, was I love talking about tennis. Tennis is one of my favorite sports to watch. We had a very strange result in tennis this week, this last week, and here's the way it kind of worked. Um, So Novak Djokovic, former number one in the world, now number two, played the number eight in the world in the Rome Open, 
And in the semifinals, Dominic Team, a clay court specialist who had just beaten Nadal, by the way, who was mm-hmm. on a 30-match winning streak on clay, the greatest clay court player of all time. Djokovic beats him 6-1, 6-love. 6-1, 6-love in the semifinals. The next match in the finals against the 16th-ranked player in the world, a 20-year-old, Alexander Zverev, he loses 6-4, 6-3. So this gets back to my comment that sometimes when you're an older player in a sport, you are the old Novak Djokovic, and sometimes right. you're just the old Novak Djokovic. So I just, you know, how yeah. do you guys well, think I, about I mean, this? I, this will segue I, I, to actually, our guests. Yeah, and I also, I, I actually kind of returned to a, a point you made um, a while, quite a, you know, a while ago when we were talking about tennis specifically and about, like, how aging really. It, it was it was kind of a pointing thing because it's, it's talking about, like, how... To win a tournament, you basically have to string together five great games, five great matches, or or six, and the majors, or, seven, yeah, yeah, the major, uh, yeah. Right. So so five to seven great matches to win a to win a tournament, and your chance of having at least one bad match goes up dramatically as you age. That's and it. and all you need is one bad match. No bad. Novak, wait until the finals for it, but all you need is one bad match. And actually, you could make an argument. This is a perfect segue to our next guest, Matthew Riker. Matthew's the head athletic trainer and exercise scientist for New York Sports Science Lab. I would imagine the sports science as players get older and how they train and how they train. And, you know, we could argue, Shane, that it's harder to play the fifth match as well as an older person as yeah. the second match well as an older person. So, for um, this old person specifically. Yes. There, there we go. Uh, so, Matthew, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Hi, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good. It's great to have you on. And, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot in Wharton Moneyball is that performance on the field, when the lights are on, doesn't just happen. And, you know, we're a show about analytics and sports and business. And, you know, these things have to happen behind the scenes before you ever get on the lights and the camera. So could you tell us a a little bit about the New York Sports Science Lab and kind of what you guys are doing and how it differentiates, how you're differentiated from other sports and science athletic training that's out there? Sure. Sure. So at the New York Sports Science Lab, we are a world-class uh, assessment, rehabilitation, and sports performance uh, training facility. So we kind of cover all the bases for the, for the athlete in, in regards to rehab, uh, strength and conditioning, and the really important factor that a lot of places aren't using or a lot of people aren't utilizing is the recovery. So we take a holistic approach to every athlete. Uh, and what makes us unique is we take a very objective, analytical uh, process to each athlete that comes in the door. So we monitor their training load. Uh, we we objectively identify each repetition, each exercise, everything they're doing. We're making sure that the load is, is going to be beneficial to them. So it sounds, Matt, that you're that what you guys are doing is you do a lot, a huge amount of measurement. How do you make a determination? You know, we're statisticians here, so we know about regression and you know machine learning and predictive models. How do you know? The, which measurements you're assessing are actually predictive of better recovery or better health? Like, what's the math or the engine kind of behind the collection side? Especially when you're doing this at kind of a personal athlete per athlete level. Sure. Yeah. So we take a lot of um, a lot of analysis to affect. So one thing we do is we we put each athlete through a it's called a global athletic assessment, where we we basically strip them down and look at their kinetic chain from from head to toe. Uh, so our sports scientists look at the way their body moves, uh, the way their, their muscles are firing, uh, the way their, their body is just handling uh, the stress of, of their athletic event. Uh, 
a lot of science we use. We use a lot of we can use heart rate variability. Uh, I know there's there's GPS technology that can monitor the, the athlete's load, how 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 much ground they're covering, uh, and we we basically take that that approach and, and just kind of take that as a baseline. From there, all of our equipment or modalities have uh, components where we can record data, such as how much force they're generating uh, per rep of, of a squat um, or how much distance they're covering um, on, a, on a reaction drill. And I know, I know you've done work, you're a former athletic trainer for both the Red Bulls and, of course, the Brooklyn Nets, two very different sports, and I want to get into how it, how it differs across sports. I know looking at your webpage, this is something the New York Sports Science Lab spends a lot of time thinking about training for different sports at different athletes. Um, how do you guys think about you know, in some sense, is more always better? Like, should I want to squat more? Should I want to run faster? Like, at some point, like, I mean, you would think that's better, but is that true? No, it's not true. It's one of the biggest myths and misconceptions. And it's really what we do here is, is preach the recovery. Um, if you, the body cannot sustain the more is better concept. The rest is, is imperative. And I'm not even talking about the aging athlete. I'm talking about every athlete as a whole. So a couple of things that we do here, we preach the, the recovery modalities that we have, whether it's a sports massage, we utilize whole body cryotherapy, which has a lot of therapeutic uh, benefits. To I know recovery. LeBron James is a big uh, believer in that. He is. Uh, many, many professional athletes are, are big believers in it. Uh, really, really helps with the recovery time. Uh, and another thing we, we, we do is we help monitor the sleeping patterns and, and of our athletes, and we're really on top of them as far as getting enough sleep. Um, to me, that's one of the biggest uh, issues when it comes to recovery is is that quality sleep um, and if an athlete is getting enough. Because there are numbers out there that say, you know, once you have that diminished sleep pattern under four, three hours, your reaction time, hand-eye coordination, and timing really, really significantly drop. It's, it's really interesting that you talk about the sleep. This is uh, I'm, uh, Adi Weiner, and I actually do some research with some of the sleep lab here, <clears throat> and we're actually looking to collaborate with, with some of our sports teams here and put on sleep monitors. Do you have monitors that you put on the, on the players uh, or the athletes, or, or is it self-reported? What is, how are you handling the sleep? Yeah, we do both. We have sleep monitors, and we, we, we also have the, uh, the, sub- the, the subjective questionnaires. Um, how well do they uh, correlate with each other? How, uh, how, how, or I guess the more general question: How well, how good are athletes in general at um, you know assessing their sleep? Um, you know, I think I, I don't think they are because it's it's tough to determine that, especially when you're in that sleeping state. It's really really tough to determine. Uh, so the objective data analysis is actually uh, re- really accurate. Uh, I think the problem is for a lot of those professional teams is violating the those players, uh, the union rules. I, I know a lot of those professional athletes of the teams didn't want to get monitored. I think that was the issue with a lot of those teams. So we're here on Morton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlin. We're talking to our guest this morning, Matt Riker. Matt is the head athletic trainer and exercise scientist for New York Sports Science Lab. And if you want to join the conversation here on Morton Moneyball, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight sixty six. Many of you listeners out there may have a specific question about your own training program that would be great to ask Matt about. So, Matt, you've been here, you've been in, let's say, the basketball world, 
um, really for over 10 years, 15 years. How have things, let's take you back to the early to mid-2000s when you started as a very young man. You're still a young man, but let's start back in the early to mid-2000s. How have things changed over the 15 years? Like, what did sports science look like 15 years ago, and what does it look like in 2017? How has it really changed? Is yeah, it pure, sure. Yeah. So in this country, it really didn't, didn't exist, in my opinion. So 15 years ago, with the, the sports medicine department, you had a strength and conditioning coach who was, you know, wanted to get the guys bigger and stronger and, and help to mitigate any injuries. You had the athletic trainers who really were there to you know, help prevent injury, but really just to take care of the athlete when they get injured. Uh, that, that has changed dramatically now. It's, it's more of a holistic department. And when you add that sports science component in, in it's the athletic trainers, the strength and conditioning coaches, and the sports science department all working together to not only rehabilitate and get the guy stronger, but it's to, to prevent those in, injuries. And so that sports science department is really going to be key in monitoring uh, the data to help prevent injury. So they'll utilize um, technology such as GPS, which I mentioned before, so they can really monitor the athlete's loads. Uh, and another technology that's widely uses heart rate variability so they can look at how the athlete's heart rate uh, is is changing due to the increased demand of of the training so this holistic team will help the coaches uh, build training sessions uh, almost objectively where the coaches aren't saying "Mm, you know maybe I should do this the guys looked tired yesterday maybe I should do that now you have real objective information that says the guys are fatigued. Let's let's if the practice was going to be really hard, let's maybe drop it down or vice versa. So you get right now you get a lot of objective information, which makes everyone's life a lot easier. So Matt, let me build on that. Let me ask you a question that we've asked. As a matter of fact, we have a gentleman by the name of Rick Peterson on, who's done a lot of work in biomechanics and baseball all the time. It builds on it builds though on your last point. He's always said it's much harder, you know, if you want to think about an exponential curve or, you know, a quadratic curve, it's much harder to throw a fastball 99 than it is 95. In other words, the effort is much harder. So the question I have for you is when you measure GPS data, like, is it hard to run? Is it much more exertion? What do you guys find empirically about the effect of heavy exertion on likelihood of injury? Like, is going at your maximum more taxing, if you'd like, than being at 90%, but possibly for a longer period of time? Yeah, that, that all depends on the sport. Uh, that all depends on the team. And the biggest thing with, with, the, with doing that is you have to get enough information. Your club has to get enough information to where you have uh, some relevant um, literature uh, to what's going on. So, for example, you know, with, with all these sports science departments, uh, and medical departments, you have to you have to just collect. You have to collect data for for a season, two seasons, three seasons, and then you're kind of going to get your trends. Uh, and then from there, you can you can kind of figure out uh, what the what the problem is. So my answer to that question is it it really depends on on the individual. I think it, to take a a wholehearted whole team perspective is is not some not a smart move. You know, I think it it depends really on that individual. Matthew, there's something you mentioned twice already, and it's we've had trainers on before, and they've mentioned it also. And I'm a little bit uh, want to get a little deeper on this. You mentioned this concept of heart rate variability, and since you're not the first trainer we've had it, we've heard this from other trainers that this is a big idea. 
Can you try to break it down to to lower levels? What aspect of heart rate variability matters? And 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 to say a, a, a non professional athlete, what what is there any lessons for 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 them? Yeah, uh, how do I put this? It's so heart rate variability. Uh, it's the it's the inner, it's the variations between the heartbeat. All right. So you're gonna like I said get that baseline of of what the athlete's beat to beat interval is. So what they're normally used to. And then you have methods to check uh, with different devices to see how that heart rate changes under high stress. And when you get that, that idea of, of how the heart rate is changing under the stress, you know that they're going to be in a fatigue state. And so that fatigue state is going to help uh, tell you that possible injury or possible breakdown is, is going to occur. So when you say variation, are you talking about the heart rate? I mean, that, that is the variation between beats is, the, is the, that translates to the heart rate. Are you looking at sort of you, you were, you're going too rapidly to a, a high heart rate and then you're coming down? I mean, what aspect of, it, of the heart rate are you actually in lay terms measuring? Yeah, it's the, the time in between the beats. And that actually varies from, from second to second. So if, if I'm beating at, say, uh, 60 beats a second, that's one second between beats. It, does it go like one, then two, then a half? Or I mean, is, it really, is that what you're looking at, how it, how it jumps yeah. around? Yeah, how it jumps around and how the physiological strength. Wow. So that's not something that an ordinary person could measure with a watch. You'd have to have equipment. Yeah, we have equipment to do, wow. to do that. There are, there's there's some, some devices on the market um, that I think the consumer can buy. There's also devices on the market that teams teams and, and sports performance companies utilize. This is Shane Jensen. One, one of the things that keeps popping up in this conversation is this, you know, the term individual, that so much of this is trying to measure individual variation and qu- kind of summarize indiv- heterogeneity across individuals. How much of that, you know, in terms of like recovery and stuff like that, how much of it is really variance across individuals versus variance across sports? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, the reason I ask is if it's all variants across individuals, you're kind of screwed, right? I mean, because you, you, you spend a lot of time talking about how you have to collect data and you have to have data to, to, to kind of tailor your recovery um, procedure. And if it really is all the heterogeneity at the individual level, what can you even learn from data collection? Yeah, just to build on, Matt, just build on Shane's point for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, what Shane's pointing out is if everything has to be done at the individual level, I don't mean literally, but let's imagine all of the variations at the individual level, there's nothing shared, then how do you make a business of it? How do you scale it? How do you, what are the general principles if there's not commonalities across people within sports, let's say? Well, that's where you you have to take that individualized approach. And for a business I think that's very that's easy because you, the person comes in one at a time. The challenge is when you have 30 people or, or 20 people on a team that you have to kind of individually monitor, and that that's where it becomes hard, and that's where a lot of you know teams might might run into some problems. Even on, you know maybe some lower level high school. Uh, I know a lot of small college teams. They don't have the resources to kind of use the technology and, and use that, that sports science to kind of look at an individualized um, player. So they'll kind of group everyone into position, uh, and that's where, you know, I, I don't think the, the biggest benefit is, is given to each individual. I think you have to take that individualized 
approach. So again, uh, this is Wharton Moneyball. We're here talking to Matt Riker. Matt is the head athletic trainer and exercise scientist for New York Sports Science Lab. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Matt, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So Matt, um, when I hear the word science, one of the things I naturally think of is about experiments and experimentation. Do you guys um, run experiments where you'll take an athlete or a group of athletes and randomize one group of athletes to try training regimen A and another group of athletes athletes to try training regimen B to see what happens? Because, you know, the classic issue is if you don't randomize, then athletes will self-select what they want to do, and that may confound your ability to measure what's the most effective treatment. So do you guys run experiments at the uh, New York Sports Science Lab? Uh, yeah, we've, we have. We've done it with our sensory training. Uh, it's another thing we're, we're very big on at the lab. We do a lot of, we call it brain training for the athlete. So our sensory technology, uh, we're working with a, a company that, that is new on the market that is, helps with uh, hand-eye coordination, reaction time, depth perception, and timing. Uh, so we're, 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 I don't know if I would say experimenting is the word, but we've had some good success with, with some athletes trying out that technology. Um, like I said, on a recovery day or on a day when the physical load shouldn't be that high for an athlete, we'll do a lot of these mental um, simulations, which, which uh, I think it's, it's a little new uh, to the industry, but it's, it's something that we're, we're um, starting to get the hang of. Is there, is there any evidence that these kinds of mental training have any impact? I mean, this is something that there's been debated about I mean, because they're now marketing these anti-Alzheimer's training and add more points to your intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. But the data is kind of sketchy, at least for the, the, the general public. Yeah, we've, we've been working with one company called Interactive Metronome that has some pretty good science and research. It was built on uh, the platform, a lot of concussion rehabilitation and head, head trauma. Um, I know that they have some, some decent research. They've done a on, study with the PGA as far as um, accuracy off the green. Uh, so there is some decent research bet- between behind interactive metronome that we've kind of uh, been incorporated with. But uh, a lot of the sensory stuff, the hand-eye coordination, the, the time, the depth perception reaction time stuff is, is new. I think the research is still uh, kind of broad and not, there's not, hasn't been enough time. Yeah, so Matt, we spent the last like 20 minutes with you talking about kind of what's being done now, and let's call it your past life with the Brooklyn Nets and training what existed 15 years ago. Now let's forecast towards the future. So you already mentioned sensory data. I know you guys at New York Sports Science Lab are doing work with 3D motion, neurotechnology, etc. What are the exciting new data sources that you see coming in? If we had you on in five years from now, you'd be saying, Eric, this is what we've been doing for the last five years. What are the exciting new ways to measure and to do sports science that you see coming up? Oh, I think I think the world of, of the sleep sleep study uh, has a, has a ways to go as far as their accuracy and, and the measurements there. I think that's going to be one of the um, the big the big things that that a lot of um, people are going to get pretty interested in, just because of the importance of sleep. Um, I think the technology is decent now, but like we said before, the technology is new, um, and I don't know how um, how accurate it is. You mean uh, the home sleep technology? There's very good sleep technology in a lab, but there's very poor technology that you would bring to your own house. Correct. Yep. Correct. Okay, so measuring sleep. Other things we should be looking for on the horizon? Uh, like, for example, I just heard something yesterday, uh, coming in this morning, actually, about last night's Cavaliers um, Celtic game that shocked me. Who do you think of all the players that played last night, 
who the second, who the bottom two slowest people were actually on the court last night. One was Kyle Korver, which might not shock a lot of people, and the other was LeBron James. So do you actually, are you guys doing work with, you? I mentioned, I see 3D motion, but what, what do you see happening in the world of speed and motion and tracking that's kind of going to be new in today's world? Uh, you know, I think that that technology is, is pretty good. I think you have to ask yourself, especially in that that elite level of professional teams, is what what do you what defines speed? I mean, the, the, you have to define speed first. What were you what what are their top speed is that, that the what, average speed? What, what yeah. what's the what's the metric there? Yeah, that's what you have to figure out, and and then you have to ask yourself, what is that really important? And then you have to say to yourself, okay, was that you know, is that with a ball, without a ball? I think you have to. It's a broad term, and I think it's 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 appealing for the for the you know the viewer on TV to see a stat and a number. But I think the the important thing is to do is, you know, in the sports medicine departments and for the professional teams is what what's relevant, what really you know what is as, it's not so sleek, but what it, what matters. And I think that's where where we need to to go with the information. So Matt, any in the last like kind of minute or so that we have, any advice you would give to all of our listeners out there who are thinking about their training regimen, etc., any kind of general advice you guys when you give big podium talks from the New York Sports Science Lab, any general piece of advice? Yeah, recover is key. Uh, I think you really have to make sure you're you're recovering and a lot of young athletes like to push themselves, more is better, more is not not always better. Uh, recovery, sleep, proper nutrition, uh, those are three things that are going to get you, you know, stronger and faster. Uh, it's going to help you way more than, you know, trying to lift heavy weights when, when you're fatigued. I'd say also knowing when you're fatigued, when you're tired, when you don't have it in you, is it's not always great to push yourself. Take that day off, focus on something else, active recovery, uh, but when you really push yourself in that fatigue state, the benefits are, are not always there. Well, Matt, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on uh, Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Matt Riker, head athletic trainer and exercise scientist for New York Sports Science Lab. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have you on again soon. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, I love uh, Matt's last term that he talked about, active recovery. Is you know The part that just shocked me is we asked him advice. I'm sure if, this, if we had been on for 30 years and we asked somebody 30 years ago, they would say, you got to push yourself. No pain, Heavy no weights. gain, right? Yeah, no pain, no gain. Right. Blood and guts. And Matt's talking about just the opposite. Notice the things he gave advice yeah. on. Sleep, recovery, nutrition. eating properly, yeah. nutrition, and all of this. And don't push yourself when you're tired. And don't push yourself when you're tired. <laughs> How about that? Well, we're not tired here on Morton Moneyball. That's just one hour of our show. We have another hour to go. So please join us again after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. I'm Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co hosts, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. And again, we're on every Wednesday morning live from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We just got off the phone with Matt Riker, head athletic trainer and exercise scientist for New York Sports Science Lab. And again, I think we're all amazed by his, you know, when I asked him for advice, it wasn't lift more, 
blood and guts, you know, push yourself into your break. It was about, as we talked about just before the break, it was about proper rest, nutrition, etc. It's good Take to Take it s- easy. Yeah. Well, kind of my, re- my exercise regime yeah, is actually, but turns not, out to be ideal. I don't think that was the level no? he was talking about. No, no you don't spend don't the first, that. like, 41 years of your life resting, and then you really turn it on? Uh, well, maybe that's going to happen in your case. We maybe. shall see. We shall see. Maybe. Well, guys, I know with Shane back, and is obviously wearing his Red Sox hat, it makes me think about baseball. So there are a couple topics in baseball I wanted to talk about. The first one is, you know, we always, statisticians always talk about the issue of, you know, small sample estimation, meaning, although at this point of the season, we don't have that small a sample, but we have some Listen, data. if you look at the, the leaderboards at this time, this into the season, the names are pretty familiar. They're very, well, I'm going to get to that in a second. And so the topic I wanted to talk about, we, we briefly, Adi and I, we talked about a little bit last week was major league uh, home run hitters, 50 home run hitters. We've talked about, we were both you know, not ruined. We were both uh, enamored with the day when, remember when George Foster hit like 52. 52, 52 way back right, in the Way 70s. back when. And we've talked about this. Henry Aaron never hit 50 home runs mm-hmm. in a season. Reggie Jackson never hit 50 home runs in a season. So, you know, forget the PED era. Hitting 50 home runs is really hard. So yep. we have three players right now who, if you did a linear projection, meaning if you just computed home runs per game, made the assumption that they were going to play every game remaining, yeah, Freddie Who, Freeman just went out, so uh, for example. Out. Yeah. That's one of my three guys. Yeah. How many people, we have currently three players, only three players left, that are projected to get to 50 and, home and runs. And that's the naive, naive you know, linear, estimator, linear estimator, the most naive linear estimator. Here are the right. three guys. One, I'll put on my Yankee hat. Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge. The Judge's Chambers. Yep, he's he's uh, <laughs> he's projected right now to reach 57 home runs. So let's take them one by one. Give me your projection for Aaron Judge. Just to buy, say, by the way, I think he has right now 14, 15, 15, 15 home runs. Right, sorry, 15 home runs leading the major leagues. So that means, obviously, we're a little let. We're not a third of the way into the season. We're about a little more than a quarter in because a quarter would project 60 for him. But we're roughly about a quarter of the way in. What's your final number for Aaron Judge uh, and we- why? Not just the number. I mean, you know. Obviously, we're. I think we're all going to predict less than fifty-seven. But sure. why? What uh, number and why? It has to, so go, to let's go to you. No, no. Shane's got to. Uh, Shane's been out of it for a while. I don't want to spoil his forecast. All right. So we got fifty-seven. Well, right. Fifty-seven. <laughs> his, so his, the most uninformed forecast, because I haven't watched this guy take a pitch yet this season, um, is uh, fifty-two. So 52. he's going to break fifty. Wow. But he's going to regress. A little bit, because there's probably a lot component All right, in there. so you're projecting, I just want to make sure we're clear, just to do the math a little bit there, if he hit, this is actually interesting, if he hit at a 45, 48 home run rate, uh, this is the math I always like to do, if he hit at a 48 home run rate for the rest of the season, if you average 3 times 48... That's 36 plus his 15, right. Right, he would get exactly to 51. So he basically needs to hit at a 48 rate. He needs to regress from a 57 rate to a 48 rate the rest of the season. By the way, for all our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball, whether you like the way Eric Bradlow does it or not, that's the way I like to think about it. What rate does he need to hit at the rest of the season to get to your predicted number? And how realistic do we think that degree of regression is? And he plays first base, is that right? No, he's a right fielder. Right fielder, okay. Yep. Okay. Um, You're also weighing in likelihood of injury in that. I, I am, and I'm weighing in the fact that he's in the American League, and so they can DA. Like, he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have to play the field, field every day, every day. If, if he doesn't want to. All right, so, so good. So, 
You've gone back but he's, from 57 but he's a, to 52. He will be playing the field every day. He's, he, the Yankees go, he's a decent fielder. He's actually, as the, Yan- no, as I, the Yankees I, I'm, go. I'm just sort yeah. of saying, like, if, he, yeah. if he's getting tired or something like that, as all players do throughout the season, right. the, the, an American League team has the additional flexibility to kind of rotate him off right. the field for a game if they want to. Right. So, Adi, you get My your turn of prediction. 57, over under 52. Oh, way under 52. Way under. Way under. How I think, way I think, are we talking so about? So, I'm actually thinking he's going to go at about a 30 home run pace the rest of the season, which I think is about what you, he projected before he started the season. Which would get him into the high 30s. 37, high 30, maybe 40 would be, a, would, be a, would be a stretch. So I'm, I'm going to predict 39 to 41 is, is my range for, for, for Judge. Listen, I'd love to see him do more. Um, I think I, I've been watching the Yankees pretty closely almost every, every game, some part of it, and he's absolutely slowed down. I mean, he raced to 12 home runs, and these last couple have come So you guys more, could have told me that. Yeah, I didn't want to say that. So uh, No, but what about an argument that someone would say, you know, you're going to have hot and cold periods, that's not right. the same yeah. momentum. You're just going to have this is naturally his first have full str- season in the majors. Well, that's that, that was another point I wanted to get to. So let's take the person who's projected. Let's forget Freddie Freeman for a second, who we know is injured now, but was projected at 54. Let's talk about the third guy. Um, what's his name? Mike Trout. Mike Trout. So he's projected at 51. So I want to ask you a series of questions. We have what's beautiful. We have some nice time here on Morton Moneyball to talk about this. What is the probability, in your view? Mike Trout will end up ahead of Aaron Judge at the end of the season. And why are you making that prediction? Okay, I'll jump in with yep. this one. Mike, I, I, Mike Trout, I think, has a, has a very low chance of hitting 50 because we've watched him for since 2011, and, and he doesn't have that kind of 50-home run stroke. So I want to take Adi's points one by one because these are important. So what Adi is talking about is this is actually one of those situations where having more uncertainty about Aaron Judge makes his interval potentially wider, mm-hmm. which means not that his expected number, Adi's going to get to that in a second, might be lower for Judge, but his probability of getting to a threshold, let's say 50, may actually be higher because we know less about him. And so his rate is more uncertain. We have we, to un- entertain the possibility that he's actually a better home run hitter than that's um, right. Mike so Trout I love, because we yeah. don't have enough data to kind of disprove that yet. I love where you started because, you know, many people that make predictions and people, our listeners on Wharton Moneyball, that's, we're in the prediction business. People always start with, what's my point prediction? People always start with the mean. But you as a statistician started with a variance statement. And I love that because that's the business we're really in, is understanding uncertainty. So that's great that you started with, regardless of your point prediction, which you will give me in a second, you said Judge actually has, a, in your view, a higher chance of getting to 50. That's right. As we stand here today. Even though I would predict him as, an, as a total, actually really as a total, a lower amount going out. So in other words, I have, a, I have him as a lower mean and a higher variance. So a better chance of hitting 50, but probably a lower uh, estimate in the end. My estimate at the end of the season is lower. Trout is, is I mean, I think uh, you must clearly have pretty, the best. best for, for that to happen, I'm uh, not, this is for, what we're going to get to. Yeah. I was going to get this. Go ahead, Shane. For, that to, for him to have, a, for, for Trout to have a, a higher mean, but lower variance, um, and for Judge to have a Lower mean, but higher variance. But for you to actually predict that Judge has about a greater probability. Right yep. Well, right. But you, I assume the variance not, has to be pretty how, big. Well, what's Huge. the difference? Yeah, the variance must be really big. Yes. And you must have a pretty tight variance for Trout. That's right. I do. And this is what I, I just want to make Trout sure. Trout is, is doing what he does every single year. I mean, you look at Trout and he's, he's, he has, he's hitting 340. He's got, I mean, the guy is just a monster. He's projected at 120 RBIs. This is I mean, what he does. But let's just talk about he the standards. Proje- well, he, I mean, in terms of home runs, he's not doing what he does every year. He's, he's, proje- not, right. he's, he's currently at a home run, home run pace, pace that is greater than... 
than, than what he's typically historically that's for right. trial. No, but I love. I want everyone to visualize this. So it's, I'm regressing that down. You know, if we were a TV show, I'd be using my hands to describe this. But what Adi's describing is: imagine a little bell-shaped curve. What Adi has is Adi has the center of the bell-shaped curve for Mike Trout to the right, higher than the center of the bell-shaped curve for Aaron Judge. So the mean is higher. The center of the little bell-shaped curve is higher. But he has a much wider spread for Judge. And so if you think about 50, but they're both below 50, if you think about how much of the bell-shaped curve is to the right of 50, what Adi's suggesting is because of the large variance, Judge has more area outside of 50, to the right of 50, even though the whole curve is shifted a little bit to the left. And that's that's good for all our listeners to understand. You can have a lower mean and a higher variance, which means, yeah, I predict you're going to do less, but if you give me a specific milestone like 50, you actually have a higher chance of getting there. I mean, to put it in, in concrete terms, I'd say 32 to 54 is Aaron Judge's you know, big interval. range. Interval. Big range. And I think Mike Trout is like 38 to 46. Well, Much smaller, forty-eight. That's, you know, that's something like way. really tight. He's gonna. Mike Trout's gonna hit about. So you're saying 40. forty-two plus or minus yeah. four, and the other guys yeah. maybe forty-two plus or minus ten or yeah, twelve or that's something right. like mm-hmm. that. I mean, Judge, I mean, Judge for his first year in the in the majors, he's been a traditionally in the minors. He was about twenty-six percent strikeout rate for the first in A and Double A and in Triple A. When he came up last year, he struck out forty percent of the time, which is very high. Yeah. But it was a short season. We're seeing him back down into the twenties. So the question is, what's he going to do going forward? That I mean. He's a, a essentially a rookie. He's a gigantic human being. I mean, he hits the ball. Gigantic. I mean, he really is a monstrosity. And he hits the ball harder than anyone. At this point, you can even say that he probably hits it harder than Giancarlo Stanton on average. He's leading the major leagues in how hard he hits it. But the question is, it's, you can't hit it. You can't hit. You got to hit it in the air, yeah. and you got to make contact. So, and that's the, where the high variance is. And pitchers is. do have a long, illustrious track record of, of adapting yeah, that's right. to hitters. So you can't throw a, a pitch past Mike Trout. That guy is is absurdly good. Yeah, I mean, I, and it's almost unfair that we we still don't think of him as the superstar that he really is. He's undoubtedly well, he's unfortunately languished on a mediocre team a mediocre for most team. of his yeah. career. And how would you guys adjust your predictions? For just let's call it history, as we know, you know, if this was the PED era, you guys might say, well, lots of guys are hitting fifty home runs. Maybe one of these guys is going to get there. So, how much do you take your, let's say, based on your knowledge of Mike Trout or Aaron Judge? But now I'm telling you the population results. I'm telling you something about the distribution of the maximum. Ignoring the PED era, let's say if you ignore the PED era, PED era over the last forty years. There might have been five guys that hit fifty home runs. I mean, we could debate on when the PED. Well, there was Brady Anderson, didn't he do it? Didn't he hit fifty? Yeah, well, we were supposed to ignore the PED era, right? He was in the PED era. I said, regardless of whether Brady Anderson was on it or not. Well, obviously the Sosa again. We're talking McGuire. All of that is out. So we're saying Bonds. All of that's gone. I'm just saying. It's ridiculously hard. I don't think there's four. I mean, if you extract the PDE, or the, I don't think you'll find four. Okay, so yeah. how Cecil does Cecil Fielder maybe Cecil Fielder hit fifty two? George Foster, George Foster yeah. did. So no, that's my question again to you guys. How do you? How does that auxiliary information now do? Does anybody want to downgrade their prediction? Well, no. you know, here's a. Here, let me. Tr- I'm going to turn your question on slightly. You've given us well, essentially two players who are leading the league right now. What do you believe is the probability that those two players actually lead the league by the time it ends? And I would say it's low. Oh, I would say it's very low. Because, by the way, just to show you how insidious linear extrapolation is, how many home runs does Aaron Judge have right now? 
15. How many does Mike Trout have? I think 13 or 14. It's 14. It's 14. Yeah. Yeah. So one has got a rate of 57. Yeah. The other's got a rate of 51. Yeah. I don't know. If Mike Trout pops one tonight, all of a sudden we're like, Mike yeah. Trout's the guy. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. have to be careful. But, but it, take a look at Eric Thames. I mean, he had, he had 13 home runs in practically the first two weeks of the season. Yeah. And, and he's completely... He may have 13 yeah. still it's right still now. Going, I mean, he's still a terrific hitter, which does segue to this issue of making this forecast. I mean, what do you do with Aaron Judge? He has essentially no major league experience what do you do with a guy like eric thames we know what to do with mike trout <laughs> just that's he's the one whose linear forecast is most accurate yeah but what do you do with eric thames he came from korea speaking of, of asia your asia yeah. trip you know baseball in in asia is extremely popular but it's a different sport well yeah. the, the pitchers throw not nearly as rapidly the the, the parks are smaller and eric thames was would they had a before, nickname like monster or yeah, before or we something. get to before we get yeah. to shane's trip to japan and the let's call it the ability to forecast from one country to the next which is by the way that's not just a problem in sports and statistics it's in business. You know, you have a product that launched in country A, you launch it in country B. It's amazing. So there's all kinds of – I, I want to get to that in a second, but yeah. let me just build on your Eric Thames point first. Um, how – in some sense, why couldn't one just do the following very simple analysis? This is the Bradlow get the simple data analysis. Why not just take every player, let's condition on having a certain number of plate appearances in the major leagues – Let's look at how many of them have had as good a start as he had within some range. I'm going to bin it into people that have had 10 to 15 home runs within, let's call it, 200 at-bats. And extract no, no statistical model. I'm just going to look empirically on what they ended up with at the end of their first season. And that's my point prediction. What's mm-hmm. so wrong? If you had enough data, I know this is where you're going to go. If I had enough data... Is that such a horrible thing to do? No. Do I need a statistical model? Can't I just do counting? That's not terribly horrible. That's a good, not a terrible a good thing model. to do. If you take all of them, it's a great All model. of them. It's a good thing yeah. to do. It'll give you a decent a decent distribution. You'll see how much yeah. variance there is. You'll see at the top. I mean, Aaron Judge was just just observed this. He's, I think, the tied for the fastest rate to hit 15 home runs and tied with Mickey Mantle, I believe, or maybe Babe Ruth. Mm-hmm. Would you forecast him with those people? Or there's probably many others who are at essentially at that rate, the Greg Nettles over the years. I mean, coming into the season, in. I thought Gary Sanchez was going to hit like 60 or something. Well, Gary right? Gary was injured for the first six yeah. weeks or so. Um, but even since he's come back, he, he has But injuries are part of this yeah, prediction, absolutely. right? Absolutely. They have to be. They they, yeah. they come in. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bravo, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, maybe you want to give us your prediction for Aaron Judge, Freddie Freeman, or Mike Trout. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four. Four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So we did. Uh, I mean, Adi gave a perfect segue to our next MLB topic. Here was uh, apparently Shane. You were at a game in Japan. Yeah, it was amazing. And so maybe for our listeners out here, I'm sure the experience was amazing and sounds like it. Um, what did you did? What did you notice about the difference between the game? And is there anything if you were now? Let's as a statistician, as you're now built, you do build statistical mm-hmm. models for baseball. Let's say it's the next Mats- Hideki Matsui. It's the next great player coming over from Japan. How would you think about forecasting? Some what was yeah, different about the no, game, and how would you do the forecast? And I, it really kind of reinforced the challenge it is to predict these trends, these great players coming out of Japan, coming over to the U.S. or, or the other way around. Um, it's 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 the the game is fundamentally different in a lot of way. I mean, a I don't think they know how to take a pitch in Japan. Like 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 there is <laughs> there are no walks or there really? was like one walk in the entire game, 
that I watched. And it, it was it was two elite of the better teams, the Umori Giants versus the Colts Swallows. And they're this is kind I've of I've even know, heard of those teams. Yeah, it was like a Yankees Red Sox type thing. They both they're both sort of based roughly in Tokyo, um, along with like four other teams. Um, but uh, they um, both they don't games walk. It was, they don't walk. I mean, part of it is the umpires. I don't think really call balls. That's not <laughs> well, a thing they do. I, you know, I'm trying to. By the way, I'm trying yeah. to. Uh, break down everybody's discussion at one point in time. Wouldn't that, given we're named after Moneyball, yeah. and what did Billy Bean say was the one of the most important stats on base percentage in, Amer- in Major League yeah, Baseball? Yeah, no, no. I'm, yeah. Well, so my yeah. point is, let's imagine you have the assumption or belief that someone that starts in Japan might not be trained as well to take pitches, therefore walk less. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that concern you greatly? about someone coming over from Japan if the culture yeah. there is more about swinging and it would more even freely. Con- it would concern me even more projecting pitchers and how they would do coming over. Because I think back to Daisuke Matsuzaka. I, now I know. I mean, he came over and he tried to pay... I mean, he... You know, he's a guy that existed kind of like Andy Pettit at the outside, you know, right right at the borders of the strike zone. One could argue all great pitchers exist at the borders of the strike zone. But the borders of the strike zone in Japan are clearly different. You know, he was probably striking out, you know, 10, 12 batters a game with the, with those pitches. And then he comes over here and he kind of struggles. He, you know, I mean, watching him as a Red Sox fan was very frustrating because he would basically walk the bases loaded every game at some point. And then maybe strike a couple guys out, maybe get out of it, maybe not get out of it. Um, I think pitchers must struggle coming over from Japan, adapting to what is, you know, seems to be a more hitter-friendly strike zone so, so in America. There's three culprits at possibility. There's the umpires calling. Yep. There's the batters just being free swingers, and the pitchers being more accurate. Yeah. You're you're blaming the umpires. Um, I it was yes. I I, I think the umpires. I, I think. All, all three of those, I mean, it's kind of hard to separate them out, right? Yeah, because they do kind really of like, uh, they, but they feed there. back on each other. Yeah. Um, I think at least the first two are, are certainly, uh, you know, a big presence. So the uh, both the umpire differences as well as um, the, the, the hitters, I just think, have a different tradition. So, so let me build on something that you guys just said, which, you know, when, whenever you guys agree with me in the show, I'm so shocked by it. I have to always keep reiterating it to our fans here on Morton Moneyball. You just said when we were talking about... Aaron Judge, we could build a data set, we could give a prediction, that would be a reasonable thing to do. Now, we're back into the Japan transition to the U.S., U.S. baseball. Why don't we just build a data set of all the players that have come over from Japan and try to do the same type of prediction? The natural thing would be, well, there aren't a lot of them. So now the question is, when you can't just compute an empirical distribution... What would you like someone to do? So maybe there's someone listening to Wharton Moneyball here that's a scout. Maybe there's someone here that's building a fantasy league and they're thinking about, I wonder how this player, you know, is going to do. You know, Thames, Eric Thames? Eric Thames. Yeah. He came over so from Korea. How, right. So how, what do you do when you have sparse data? Like, what are this kind of reasonable assumptions? Let's even just focus on baseball. Let's not be generally abstract about assumptions you can make. How would you even start with a prediction where you just have very sparse data? It just hasn't happened that often. Well, this is where you often fall back on peripherals that you can measure. Yeah, you know how fast are you? What's your bat speed when the ball's coming off the bat? What's the what's the rate? The velocity on average? Notice, by the way, none of those things depend on whether you're in Japan or no, uh, unless, of course, you say the way they're calling pitches is different. The person didn't get the opportunity to throw certain pitches. But those see that you've said this many times on the show, Adi, which is. When you don't know what to do, p- 
people tend to put over-importance on things you can measure. They like do. All of a sudden, just because you can measure it doesn't mean it's actually valuable. And nope. you've said it many times that people, it's almost like a psychological fallacy. If I can measure it well, it must be important. Or if I can measure it at all, it must be important. But the very few Japanese players who have come over to the to the MLB generally do pretty well. And that's, of course, a, a selection bias phenomenon. But I wanted to ask Shane, um, there this, there's this unbelievable superstar in Japan, this 20-year-old player, Otani, I believe his name is. Did you get to see him uh, no, or talk about him? I mean, what him. makes him so remarkable, he apparently is the best pitcher in Japan and the best hitter. <laughs> and he's 20 years old. Yeah. Simultaneously. And he wants to come to the to MLB within a few years. And to be what? Like, we have another Rick Ankeel situation? Or well, is he no, Babe Ruth? That, is he Babe Ruth? That's the question. And he wants to do both. A shocker. The silence in the room is is deafening here. Well, I mean, he wants to do both, and he's. I, I mean, you're, you're hitting our natural skepticism of towards course. you know <laughs> people that are able to do that. It would be relatively unprecedented, at least this century. Um, well, but yeah. you talk about he's he's the top Japan pitcher and the top Japan right. hitter, and the top hitters have come over to the United States and they've done well. Hey, look, and the maybe, top pitchers have come well. So this is a question we could have asked our last guest, Matt Riker from the you know from Sport, New York Sports Science Lab. Well, let's think about this for a second. What would stop someone from let's say he's a great hitter? What would stop him from playing first base? I'm making this up on days one to four, and on day five he's on the mound. If he's one of your best starting pitchers, you don't risk the injury. All right, I said first base. Notice I didn't pick a random position. He's he's not moving around that much. No, maybe it has to do with rest. He's not getting the proper yeah. rest. But you don't throw the ball a ton at first base. I don't I'm think just that's asking. why they stop them. I think it's because they need to work full-time on one and not the other. So, I mean, Babe Ruth, when he was in playing for the Red Sox back in the 1919 tens. Yeah, and the yeah, yeah. 10s, he had a season where he played every other game in the outfield. I mean, every game, every third game, three games in a row in the outfield, in the fourth game, he would pitch. So he did do that. He did. Yeah. It. And he had 29 home runs, which was basically more than almost every other team. And he did win 15 games. Yeah. So it's never. So it's not unprecedented. <laughs> yes. It just hasn't been observed in a century. In really a century, basically a century. It would be interesting to know if his goal was to, and I think I know the answer to this. I think you guys would agree with this. If his goal was to maximize lifetime revenue, meaning pe- salary in the MLB, which would you recommend he do for Otani? Uh, I have to tell you, I'd have to say he should be a position player. Really? No. I would. I revenue? If, if, if you could uh, be a top... Salary. Because, because I, I, are we conditioning on him being... Uh, if he chooses one, he's being... Let's, he's let me, let's see. This is why when you have a conversation with statisticians, you always have to be precise. Let's pretend he ends up at the 90th percentile of the distribution of either a position player or a pitcher. He gets to be in the top 10% position player or pitcher, which from a purely... Pitcher. If, Pitcher, pitcher, and I'm saying hitter. And I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you what I. What good, I, I love a good fight here on Wharton. I, I would Ball. say it's the expected longevity. I see. I, whereas I'm certainly going on like a poor per year salary basis. Okay, the, the, that's the, true. The 90th percentile yep. pitchers are paid Definitely. much more highly. That's than right. The 90th but they, they have shorter careers. Yeah. So then it's just purely an empirical question. Their distribution on their career length, I yeah. think, is more compact and shorter. Oh, for sure. So if you want to play till you're 35, 36 years old, make that salary for the with higher probability, with less variance. I think position player is the way to go. Mm. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting empirical question because we're all multiplying this by... We're trying to compute, in some sense, the net present value of each of the two. But, but yeah. to, 
this guy could probably of, transition from one to the other. So, there you go. <laughs> but but well, maybe the truth is, is though you have a much cha- better chance of playing and being in the majors yeah. for a longer. I mean, because there's a there's a, a scarcity among pitchers, there's, and there's always pitchers needed. Yeah, and so if you if if you if you, if you're talking about making it to the 90th percentile and getting those big bucks for the longer time and having a longer career, position player. But if you're talking about being able to play in the majors. Being a pitcher is a way yeah, to go. Yeah, and I would ca- I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the cash-in now. Cash-in now, right, right. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen this morning here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, and if you want to join the conversation, matter of fact, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the question. Would you rather be a 90th percentile position player or a 90th percentile pitcher? Please call in. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Yeah, I mean... This, to me, is a really—I I had not heard of this player, but it really— We're going to. We are absolutely going to. It, yeah. I don't know whether it's a year to two years, but he is absolutely the most remarkable thing that hit Japan, I think, perhaps ever. Well, I mean, they've had remarkable guys come through there. I, I, you know, Daisuke was remarkable. Tanaka was remarkable. Yu Darvish was remarkable. Note, I've, always, always, I've listed a whole bunch of players that actually did have major league success. So we Ichiro. will hear this guy. <laughs> Ichiro was remarkable. Matsui was remarkable. Most, the, the kind of top, top, you know, kind of Japanese players in, in their league do, I think, transition relatively well to America, but they never do as well in America. As with they do the, in Japan, the, of course. Maybe the exception of Ichiro. He's a pretty unique person. Um, they never do as well in America as they did do in Japan. Remember Hideki Irabu? I do remember. <laughs> I, did, I was going to ask you who, who guys, if you guys could name somebody that had kind of been somewhat of a – because everybody – He was a huge, huge just in Japan. Met, I know. But everybody Shane just mentioned was, I would call, very successful. I'm not saying Hall of Fame. Ichiro, of course, is in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. But very successful in the U.S. Now you've named Arabu was someone that didn't actually have that success. I, you know, And they paid him a lot of money to do that. They abso- <laughs> absolutely paid him a lot of money to do that. So, Shane, any other sporting events from abroad or any other events that you had abroad before? Well, we take a break I, here. I was, I was in, uh, yeah, I was, I was in uh, Japan during one of their big sumo competitions. And I, I don't really have much to say quantitatively about sumo wrestling other than it, you, you definitely should watch this if you can. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, I mean, it's certainly as, as far as far as sporting events um you know in terms of in terms of the kind of action to ceremony kind of ratio very low for for sumo wrestling and there, there's about each match appears to last about 10 seconds or so and there's a lot of posturing associated with that so just imagine imagine it would be like kind of like a heavyweight boxing match where like the, the the people walk out and they've got all the music and there's all the ceremony and then every single boxing match lasts one round or less. Now I have a follow- one follow up question too that's absolutely ridiculous, but I've always wanted to ask someone that knows something mm-hmm. about hockey. You're going to want to wonder what the hell's the rea- relation between the two, but I need to ask you put this question. Put him in question. goal. That's where you're yeah. going. Put why, a sumo wrestler in goal. Yeah. Why? Why couldn't I put a sumo wrestler in the goal who essentially blocks just by his physical mass? 90% of the area of the goal. Because players can hit the other 10%. All right. Well, that's a good reason. And you need to be able to move. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. I've always wondered the question yeah. why we've never Although, seen a 400 I mean, that would, that would work at a lower level of hockey where players aren't as precise. With it, but, but, I mean, you, you know, a professional hockey player can hit, can identify and hit that 10%. Like a two-inch square. Yeah, I mean, right. they'll hit that spot if you yeah. can't get there. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because there there has been some articles written mm-hmm. about the blocking of the goal, literally physically blocking yep. it with the equipment, the way they stand, and that's they've got actually better at that over time. 
Hmm. And by the way, just before we wrap up for this half hour of the show, um, I've gotten some data on Otani here, thanks to our producer, Matt Johnson. Apparently, he's been clocked multiple times at 101.2, his pitch speed, 101.2, and he's gotten, not so bad, 142 strikeouts in 118 innings. Not bad. How about his hitting statistics? Well, that's not coming up on my screen, but I'm and sure... And they're also hard to translate. Yeah. Yeah, that's, again, the, str- the strikeouts... It is is not necessarily you. You yeah. wouldn't want to just project that. In, onto but the America. the pitching speed is is that's yeah. why I talked about. Yeah, that's, that, that's, and that, that's a great point. That the peripherals are probably more translatable than the outcomes. Well, guys, in our last half hour, just to portend what I want to talk about in our last half hour, um, one of my sons brought up to me last night, and he he made me try to guess. I'm not going to make you guys try to guess, although maybe I will. Um, I try said, Dad, there is currently 15 players active in the NBA active in the NBA, these are current players, who are predicted to have a greater than 90% chance to make the Hall of Fame. So don't say anything, guys. Listeners, get geared up to call one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight sixty six to give me your predictions of who those 15 players are. And we'll come back and talk about that right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Brown. I'm here with my co hosts this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. We were obviously just talking about baseball, and Danielle Bruno, our sound engineer, is still batting 1,000. There's another song I don't know. So we're two for two today on songs I do not know, but maybe other people do. Well, I asked everyone to think about calling in. I'm hoping to see the phone lines light up with your guesses of the 15 current players in the NBA that are have a 90% or greater probability to make the Hall of Fame. So I'm turning it over to my co-hosts, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen, one at a time. Shane, why don't we start with you? Who's your first guess of someone, a current player, who's got a 90% chance of I mean, this the is Hall probably not the best player I could, but this, this is one definitely Manu Ginobili. Okay, what's interesting is Ginobili really? is not listed. He yeah. is not. Yeah. He is not on one of the people that that's a got Hall a Hall of point. Famer, man. I, I'm just telling you, he's not listed. Well, so, so how is how is this list being constructed, if you don't mind This me was constructed by 538. Okay. It was done by taking people's career statistics and comparing them to those people yeah. okay. in the Hall of Fame. Gotcha. So Manu Ginobili, by the way, I agree with you that he's a Hall of Famer, but I'm not sure he's a 90%. But you know what? I'm going to write his name down because at some point I want to ask you, how many people on this list are less deserving than Manu Ginobili? Right. But he's not there. Okay. So Adi, I'll, I'll alternate here. Give me I'm an NBA one, player man. that's Damn. top 15. Well, that's, come what? on. LeBron James, number right. one. So, that's too easy. Right. LeBron James is you, there. You're asking. we got to get rid of the easy ones, all right. right? LeBron James. And by the way, can we all agree he's a Tier 1 Hall of Famer? Yeah. <laughs> all right. We'll guess that. All right. Yeah. Shane, maybe. let's move on to you. Go ahead. Go. Give me another player. Oh, uh... <laughs> Come on, let's get the easy ones yeah. out of here. Come right. on. Steph, Steph Curry. Curry. Right. Steph Curry. All right, Steph sure. Curry. It's true. Can we I, all I agree he's a tier one Hall of Famer? Ones. Yes, we can he's agree. He's a tier one Hall of Famer. He needs, well, no. Okay, so. He's I, an MVP of the league multiple times. Yeah, but tier one, I mean, you just. I mean, what's, the, what, what's the, the percentile? I mean, on tier come one? on. Let's say the top 5% of all Hall of Famers. Yeah, see, now he needs more longevity to actually do that. For the Ooh. top 5% of Hall of Famers? Maybe. All right. I, I mean, I mean, definition. He, he, I mean but if, I give him, if he I give continues him like this for many, many more know, seasons, But I'm sure. giving him something particular, which I think is a bonus for really doing something different. 
really revolutionizing the game. He didn't revolutionize. Yeah. I mean, he's the best representative of how the game has been revolutionized. Well, no, he didn't he invent did not it. single-handedly revolutionize the game. But he's he, not the I, Lawrence Taylor of like basketball. It. Okay. Well, we got look, we got 13 to go All here. Right. So well, you LeBron had and Steph Curry. All, All right. right, Kevin Durant. By the way, you've named the top 3 so far. These are the people with the highest probability. Right. Kevin Durant, can we agree he's a first-tier Hall of Famer? Well, no, we need the longevity thing again. Not for the top 5% of all Hall of Famers? If we had to name the 50 greatest players of all time, would Kevin Durant be on that list right now? Wait, there's like a uh, there's like a thousand players in the NBA Hall no, of Fame. No, but I'm saying, would he make? I think everybody would agree. Let's uh, maybe we'll use that as a criterion for Tier One. If we, you know, every five years they trot out the 50 greatest players of all time. Well, is, then, then that's a different percentile. It's just, hard. It's right? higher. It's probably ten to fifteen percent then of okay. the Hall of Famers. Is Kevin Durant one of the fifty greatest players of all time? Yeah, you lower it down to like fifteen percent of the Hall of Famers, and yeah, he probably makes that. All right, we got LeBron, Durant, and Curry. Who else? Russell Westbrook. That's yeah. the fourth guy, by the way. He is on the list. On the list, yeah. Russell Westbrook. Okay. Russell Westbrook is well. I'm, we could keep asking. I have him on my list. By the way, the first he had four an incredible named, season this year. The, is he going to be MVP this year? I don't think so. No. I th- statistically, James statistically, Harden was Harden, actually yeah. had, a, had a better season. By the way, the first four you guys named, which is good, LeBron, Durant, Curry, and Westbrook, I have all as Tier 1 Hall of Famers. I only have one other person amongst this list as a Tier 1 Hall of Famer. Tier 1. And it's not somebody you're going to—I mean, you'll know of this player, of course, but it's not someone you would immediately jump out and think of. I'll give you a hint. He, uh, he plays for the L.A. Clippers. Oh, jeez. Uh, well, why am I blanking on his name? Curly redhead kid. <laughs> you mean Blake Griffin? Yeah. No, no, not him. I think Chris Paul is a tier one Hall of Famer. If Chris you compare Paul, huh? him hmm. to other point guards who have okay. played the game, he'll probably end up in the top three in assists. When you combine his scoring plus assists, when you look at his assist to turnover ratio, when you look at every advanced metric on his efficiency, he's one of the greatest point guards to well, ever play I, and, the and, game. And, 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 and I he's mean, done it for ten consecutive yeah, no, years. And now. I mean, but but that's I mean that's it's interesting because that that is kind of subtle. I, I I feel like I you know to kind of be in this elite tier one of the Hall of Fame. Even simple, a simple, naive like watchers of basketball like Audie and I should have been able to guess him. And well, we, we, that's we, we a different. Even I mean, think that's the him. problem is is that you're you're saying positional. and you're citing a lot of sort of advanced statistics Correct. that would not necessarily be as and, prevalent and have to the a Clippers casual won fan. Championships? They have no. not. They've never won them. Despite Steve Ballmer's efforts to put tons of money, that's not a criteria. But it's why I don't know about it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I don't see him. That's right. That's you know? right. By the way, I may have to penalize. I may have to put you guys in the corner and say you're gonna have to say it's Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. Let's let our fans know who's speaking here. One yeah, at a time, no, here, right, guys. Right, right. One at a time, here. All right. So we got <laughs> this my- is Shane Jensen and Manu Ginobili should be in the hall. Good. How about Dirk Nowitzki? Where is he? There's numbers. There's yeah. another guy. Ah. So there's Dirk. And by the way. In, I wish, in my heart of hearts, Dirk was a first-tier Hall of Famer. But I not. just don't think he is. No. I put him in the next now, tier. Now, when you're saying, are we talking, we're talking about first-tier Hall of Famers, or are we talking about super locks on getting in? All these players, according to 538, are super correlated. locks on getting in. Uh, but not, Who, you can be a super lock co- and not be a first. We, we, we debated last week. Yeah. You weren't here. Shane, I know. You were, we talked about, about Derek Jeter, because Derek yeah. Jeter Day at Yankee Stadium. They retired his number. And nobody thinks Isn't he's not day? a... Not Jay, Matt Johnson. No, so we, no, no, one. but here, nobody disagrees he's a lock to be in the Hall of Fame. They will agree. But 
there's a big argument whether he's tier one Hall of Fame. That I, I believe so, that is arguable. Yeah, and and uh, Actually, I think Matt, Matt Matt our producer was saying he is tier one Hall of Fame. And the two biggest Yankee fans in the world do, not, do not think, think he's he is. Tier one. I do not yeah. think he's tier one Hall well, of Fame. Upper tier two. Upper yeah. tier two, yeah. but not tier one. I'm know? surprised I agree with you guys on this. But Holy I do. cow! But and so we're talking about the NBA here. Are we talking about super lock to be in or? All of these guys are super locks to be okay. in. Yeah, okay. So Dirk Nowitzki, who super else do we got? This guy, yeah. this guy, you got a bunch of others. Dwayne who, Wade. James. Ah, there we go. Now, I have D. Wade at the top of my tier two. I do not have him as a tier one Hall of Famer. Do you guys agree? I have, yeah, if, I don't have him as tier one. But I mean, I was, I, I was, you know, I, I, I mean, the thing is, we we had Durant in this tier one. All right. <sighs> And we don't have Dwayne Wade in this tier one. We have a lot more data on Dwayne Wade. Yes, we do. All right. Why? Why? I mean, I, I think we really are kind of recency biased on Kevin Durant. Here. That's true. We're human beings. Recency right? is, such a, is a terrible thing. But I, what has Kevin Durant done? I mean, I'm yes. I'm going to give you my opinion. What has okay. he done lately? A lot. I'm <laughs> going to give you my opinion. Well, he's done a lot really lately. lately. Yeah, it's an yeah. interesting comparison, Durant and D. Wade. Even when Durant, you know, sorry, when D Wade and Shaq won their first title together, I actually don't ever think D Wade was the best player in the NBA. And I think one could make an argument from a purely scoring point of view. Durant is unstoppable. I mean, he's just an unstoppable. He may be the greatest scorer we, that we forget. Wilt Chamberlain when he was seven feet, and everyone else was five ten. Durant may be the greatest <laughs> scorer in the history of the NBA. The guy is unstoppable on the offensive side. The guy's six eleven. He shoots threes. He can handle the ball well. He rebounds well. He blocks shots well. I mean, to me, I just think of D- Durant as being like a game-changing type of player. And I always thought of D. Wade, similar to Scottie Pippen. Man, oh man, this is a great number two guy. I'm so glad D Wade is the second. He was player. definitely the number one guy when, during Miami's first championship. It's debatable. Right? It's their numbers were close. This wasn't the old crumpled Shaq quite then. Shaq was still a 25 and 15 guy on that team. Okay, you could say he was the A player on that team. You could say so. All right, keep going. We got seven down, eight to go. Paul Gasol. Very interesting. Paul Gasol is on the list. And that wouldn't be a name everyone would think about. No, I certainly didn't think about it. No, but Pau Gasol is absolutely on the list. And yeah. it's kind of this, you know, he's, he, you could argue I, he's I, been I certainly transformative. I would not put him tier one. I think he's unambiguously not tier three. Tier I put one, him tier but, three. Of yeah. my tier three, I put him on that list. But Pau Gasol is there. Who else? How about uh, the Spurs guy who went down, Leonard? Ah, he's too Too early. Too early. I mean, he's, he's excellent. I'm forecasting. But yeah, there is but, another I mean, Spur. We, who also went down, who's on the list? Tony Parker. Tony yeah. Parker, yeah. yeah. So, get and again, to him. tier three. I do but, like the okay. Spurs. But, but Locke, Tony, again, according to 530, over 90% yeah. of making the Hall so of Fame. So he, more than 90%, but Manu Ginobili, not on the list. Well, let me say why. Wow. The interesting thing. Okay. Did you, you weren't here probably a couple, I don't know if you were here a couple days ago. Ginobili's so maybe his last game. Yep. Um, Greg Popovich, the another Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame coach of the Spurs, said, the reason why he loved Manu Ginobili more than maybe anybody he's ever coached is he said, I've taken a Hall of Fame player and I put him on the bench for 10 consecutive seasons. He said, you want to talk about a guy who gave up his game for the better of the team? He goes, this is a lock Hall of Fame player who came off the bench for 10 years. This is why I think Ginobili's not a lock. When you look at his numbers... He only played 20-some-odd minutes, He right? only played because yeah. he came off the bench. 
So he doesn't have the numbers that Tony Parker has. He just doesn't. He didn't. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the advanced metrics, points per minute played, right. efficiency. Against which competition? When does the second tier get in? Well, that's the other you know, that's challenge. A, that's a tough thing to think about. I actually do think that basketball is going to have a... The next revolution in basketball is going to be managing player player exhaustion. because And using your second be, your bench and, and cycling players out so they can get some rest. All right, guys. So we got 9 out of 15. What how about Carmelo Anthony? No? But, See, you claim you don't know much about yeah, basketball. I've been following. But you I've been, just you named go. somebody that's really good. And by the way, you know, he's a New Yorker. Come medals. on. <laughs> Carmelo Anthony's on the list. And, can we all agree also, second tier? He's not a top tier Hall of Famer. No. It's not just he hasn't won a championship. You know, he's just. Yeah. But second tier, sure. great scorer for 10 consecutive, yeah, sure. 15. All right, so Carmelo. He was the next. So we're up to 10. <laughs> we got five more. What about Harden? We Harden? No, we can't talk about see, Harden. See, you guys you, were we saying mentioned this him was... Already. You, guys, but you mentioned him already. You, you came no, out but you guys were saying this was MVP. difficult. James Harden. I'm running out. Can we out. agree right now? Well, I'm going to give you hints on the other ones. Can we agree that Harden, at least at the moment, appears to be a second tier? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would say, sure. Mm-hmm. First tier mm-hmm. is unusual. I mean, come on. He, he would Almost have everybody to have, would have, have to appear to have be... more sustained... You know, success, obviously. All right, well, quickly, guys, I'll give you some hints for the last five. One was a player who I claim in the 2000, uh, our Boston guy here, in the 2008 NBA playoffs, I claim was better than Kobe Bryant. To my deathbed, I will say, when Kobe Bryant was his peak and this player was at his peak, he was better than Kobe Bryant in that series. Who's my guy? My Celtic. You're talking about the truth? I'm talking about the truth, Paul Pierce. Well, Paul Pierce. Paul yeah. Pierce is predicted over ninety percent for the Hall of Fame. And by the way, to my I only, deathbed, I only I missed him because te- I forgot he was still current. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I me will too. T- but right. I will yeah. tell you to this day, Paul Pierce was the better player yeah. than yeah, Kobe you, you, Bryant you, you in that NBA that. Finals. Yeah. I talked is, about is this. Is Garnett minute. still playing? No, no he's he, not. He's but not, he okay. would be on that list. Okay. But we have another center, a guy who's known more for his defensive play and rebounding than anything else. He played with the Lakers for a little while. He played for the Hawks for a while. He's currently on the Houston Rockets for a while. Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard. Gotcha. Yeah, so, yeah. So Dwight Howard is another guy. And there's none of the young guys have forecast to be 90%. Not yet. Not yet. Not so yet. Not, none of the great you know players. Like you could imagine. Marcus Aldridge or some Marcus of Marcus Aldridge. Or you could say Jimmy Butler. or Kyrie any, Irving. Kyrie <laughs> Irving. Definitely. But not yet. Iguodala. Iguodala. <laughs> the two others, by the way. One is a guy Clay you Thompson, left out. Thompson, maybe? No. Not yet. Yeah, okay. The other guy, just the other two quickly. One you would never have gotten. I didn't get. I got 14 out of 15, I must admit. <laughs> One was a guy that was was part of the big three on the Heat. We always forget about Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh, yeah. They, yeah. They're forgotten three, but if you look at his career numbers, remember, forget his Heat days. Yeah. In Toronto, this was a, like a 30-10 guy. Yeah. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And that's another guy. And the last one, which I never would have guessed, Joe Johnson. I wouldn't have guessed it either. But Joe I'm just Johnson. saying, he's, just, he's been one of those guys that's yeah. been like a... T- 18 to 20 point a game score for like 18 years. And you just look up his career numbers, and it's like, yeah, if it's a weak well, year, the, he'll kind of get in. And- so, so, I mean, um, for, and this obviously has relevance for somebody like Joe Johnson. Um, the voting on in, in, for the NBA Hall of Fame, is it a little bit more kind of like quantitatively savvy than other leagues? Because obviously in baseball, like the Joe Johnsons of baseball that are kind of quietly, consistently good – don't sniff the hall. Well, fan. well, let's good transition. Mike Messina. Let's. Well, he's not in yet. <laughs> no, I but, know. But let's transition. No, no, no. But let's transition the to hall. the. Yeah. Is is um, is uh, uh, Joe Johnson 
the Andre Dawson of baseball. Mm. The Hawks in the Hall of Fame. Andre Eventually, Dawson. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Well, that's right. I didn't say Aunt Joe Johnson was getting Andre in next Johnson year. Andre Johnson was a, star, a superstar yeah, in I, his prime. I'm trying to think of what I the mean, Joe Johnson name on everybody's, would be. Yeah, so let's maybe, maybe by the way, maybe uh, we're here on Wharton, Expo, you think about. We're here on Wharton Moneyball. <laughs> this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Matter of fact, this is a great point. Let's admit if Joe Johnson is a Hall of Famer, he's barely over the line. Why don't we take this as a point to transition to other sports? Let's take NFL. Well, can I ask you just a, yeah, a broad please. question? Yeah, we've talked about this before about baseball. What fraction of baseball players make the Hall of Fame? Where do, how does that stand in basketball? What fraction of of players make the Hall of Fame? Well, let's say the following: the reason why it's a lot higher. It's got to be a no, lot no. Higher. But let's well, let's say why. The reason it's a lot higher is there's roughly the same number of teams, so that's not a difference. But the NBA has 12 players or 15 on a team. Baseball has 25. Right. And then secondly, right, um, essentially the same number go into their yeah. Hall of Fame yeah. each year. You know, so two really, or three players, players a year. players per team is the only real difference. It's players per team. So it's probably double. Yeah. I mean, the rate is probably double in the NBA compared to baseball. You know, 12 to 15 players a team versus 25. So it probably is double the rate. Yeah, it's by the way, it, it's re, it's hard. It's hard to get. I mean, it's really hard. So who's there? If you guys had and to football, th- is is football no the hardest? The yeah. hardest. I mean, how many players are on a football team? It's a fifty-three man roster, yeah. and as you guys know, they really have a like ninety seasons, players yeah. on a team. Yeah. yeah, and you can only play for. You know, I mean, you should probably just cut that down to regular starters, right? And right. then you're probably down to like thirty players per team, right? All right, but it's so. Yeah. We've, I think we've had this discussion. We all agree that making the NFL Hall of Fame. I mean, if I listed the guys that were in the NFL, not in the NFL Hall of Fame right now, you'd like relatively so. Every one of them is better yeah. than Joe Jones. If we talk about the percentile yeah. distribution yeah. in their sport, like yeah. Michael Irvin took three or four, I understand he had off the field issues, yeah. but he had three or four years. Terrell before. Owens somehow is not in the NFL I, Hall of Fame. How is Terrell Owens not in the NFL Hall well, of Fame? We, we all kind of know why he's not in, and it's not a very quantitative answer. No, I understand that, but, but I'm just but, saying. But, but yes, but yeah, I mean, somebody, I don't even know what the Joe Johnson of football would be, but um, I don't know. <laughs> Dallas Johnson. Clark? I don't, I don't know. Like, yeah, well, so, it would have to be some lineman or something, yeah. somebody that had a good career. Good numbers. You know, yeah. Good numbers. Year yeah. in and year out. So, guys, let's also – so now let's move not to the past. Let's move to the present. Um, last night we had a very exciting NBA game. Uh, you know, the Cavs played the Celtics. For, for, for those of our listeners that didn't watch the game or didn't even watch game three, the Cavaliers had blown them out in the first two games. We're up 21 epic, point. Epic blowout. Well, there was a 44-point win in game two, which is the largest ever win in, like, the conference finals. In game three – they were cruising up 21 points with seven minutes left in the third quarter. Apparently, the, the Vegas odds you could bet was 0.2% that mm-hmm. the Celtics were going to win at one point. 0.2. That's, that's even more remote than the... Than the, than so the, one in 500. Right, but even the Patriots had a better shot when they were down. Yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, that's no, I, actually that's a great comparison yeah. between the two. And you were just talking about winning that game. And, of course, the Celtics came back and won that game. And, for those people not watching last night, there was a point in the first half last night where the Celtics were up 17 points. They were up 10 at the half last night. And then, and shockingly in last night's game, I've, I've actually never sh- sure I've seen this from a superstar. LeBron James picked up his fourth foul, fourth with six minutes left in the second quarter yeah. last night. 
And that's why you need multiple superstars. That's when Kyrie Irving just said, well, let's stop this. I'm the second guy to LeBron James. Let's start taking over this game. And he ended up with 42 points in the game and just had a remarkable game. I think, But LeBron also had a really good second half, too. LeBron had 24 points in the second half. 70% shooting. I mean, it was ridiculous. He kind of woke up. But I actually thought, and I'd love your guys' reaction to this, I actually thought for a moment there, for just a moment, the Cavaliers were on the brink. What I mean by that is, if they had cracked there, let's imagine they end up down 20 at the half. Not 10, but 20. Well, they got blown out by 30-something points in the end of Game 3. They're down 20. So in some sense, in a full game now, they've been blown out by like 40-something points. Just like Now they're thinking, it could be 2-2. And remember, who has the home court? The Celtics have the right. home court. Games yeah. 5 and 7. I actually thought for about two minutes last night before Kyrie decided to take over that, you know what, this Celtic dream's not impossible, yeah. and then it ended. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and and I mean that's that's what you say about the NBA playoffs. We we can convince ourselves for about two minutes that it's not going to be the teams we predicted from the start of the season. It's going to be in the finals. So let's for return- about two minutes we we fooled so, ourselves. So Shane, one of the things that that has recurred while you've been away is the five thirty eight forecast for the probability that the Cavs win has hovered between three and five percent. It's now up to seven percent. Well, that's right. But the, the other ninety three percent, of course, they're saying it's ninety three percent that the ridiculous. Warriors are going to beat Vegas the Cavs. Has been, Vegas has had it around the low twenties for this entire time. And this has been a most outrageous discrepancy that you've seen between an um, analytic forecast and the, the actual odds set by the bookies. The explanation for that has been the poor performance of the Cavaliers during the season and the inability of their 538's ELO model to really adapt yeah. to non-stationarity. Still, now that we've watched 12-0 and 0 Warriors... Against let's at the moment it's eleven and one Cavs. Let's not make it seem like the That's Cavs true, haven't done well. But but it just seems that the, the 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 Warriors have just waltzed. What do you think? Well, I I was going to ask you guys a related question, which is: Does the fact that the Cavaliers lost a game does that change anything for you? Like, let's imagine they beat the Celtics in Game Five. Let's pretend they do. They went twelve and one. The Caval the uh, Warriors, as Adi mentioned, went twelve and zero. Did, did that change anything for you that they lost a game to the Celtics? It did. It did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, kind of the... the because the Golden State has shown nothing but just complete dominance throughout, Total dominance. Right? And so, I mean, you know, you basically we, we do have, you know, the Celtics series, I mean, we all know where it's go- how it's going to end up, but it at least did show some fallibility on, like, a well, within-game basis well, of this? the Cavaliers. You, were, you weren't here. When Kawhi Leonard, before Kawhi Leonard got injured... In the third quarter of Game 1, the Spurs were up 25 points. In the third quarter, Mm -hmm. Kawhi Leonard gets injured. They get outscored by 28 the rest of the game. A lot of people are saying if the Spurs had won that game and captured them, they're not saying they would have won, but that's a 4-2 series. That's not a 4-0 series. It's a 4-2 series if Leonard and Parker are both healthy. So maybe, I mean, what's your guys in our last two minutes here, you know, a week from now, I think, I hope we'll have an NBA Finals game a week from now. Who knows? The way they've scheduled it, we may not be playing a game for another six weeks. What are your thoughts about the NBA Finals? What odds do you give the Cavaliers? Let's remember, the defending champion Cavaliers who beat the Warriors in seven, won two games there. But remember, didn't have Durant. What are your odds for the Cavaliers? Adi, I'll start with you. I give the Cavaliers about a 15% chance. 1-5? 
No, 15%. Yeah, we have 15 one and six, one and six, between one and six and one and seven. So he would take, if I bet no, Adi yeah, right now five, and I said, Adi, five, I want, yeah, no, I want yeah. five to one mm-hmm. odds. You would give me five to one odds right now. Sure. You would give me. Well, that's, that's almost five to one odds is, is one sixth okay, probability. Four so. to one. You'd give me four to one right now for sure. Yeah. I mean, give you? I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, if I sure, were to bet $20 I'd love it. on the Cavs, yeah. and you'll say, I'll pay you 80 if the Cavs win, you'd be happy to give me 4 to 1 right I'd now. I'd give it to you. Yeah, yes. sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Shane, what do you think? 40%. Wow. 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 We are different. Man. Wow. The, the two sides here. We have. We may this get... is an extre- a, uh, extremity. Boy. No, well, no. Well, it ta- 40% no, 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 no. versus 15%. Let's is... talk about what we. Let's wrap up the show today with what you talked about last week, Adi. You're saying the ratio is six to one. He's saying the ratio is three to two. The difference between sixty forty and eighty three sixteen is huge. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge yeah. difference. Yeah. So, so wow, I, I I've not heard anybody say forty percent. No. Um. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. The Cavalier, no, I mean I, I'd rather Golden State won, but uh, Cav- Cavaliers won last year. Well, we're gonna ha- we're gonna they, ha- they've changed it a bit. Well, we're gonna have. Are to they s- better this year? The, the, no, but, uh, the Golden State's better, which is yeah. why I've lowered it from fifty down to forty. Well, we're gonna have to see. We're gonna have to see in a week. Well, guys, this has been a great two hours here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, thanks to our guest today, Matt Riker from the New York Sports Science Lab. Thanks, as always, to our producer Matt Johnson for bringing us interesting guests and for helping us shepherd the show. Thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer Danielle Bruno, and thanks, of course, to my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. And of course, we'll be those great retrospective statisticians a week from now when hopefully some NBA games have been played. So thanks for joining us here on Morton Moneyball, and we'll see you next Wednesday live from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Until then, enjoy your sports.